Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 93 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined, as always, by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, I, I screwed up the intro. We, we're not going to put it out there, but I literally fumbled on the thing I do every episode, and that's not even, I think, the first time I've done that. I uh... Fun fact, um, David Letterman used to do it every time he came out, too. No, just kidding. I just made that up. I'm sure he was perfect. Yeah, actually, you know, like, um, when he used to throw the pencil behind him after he uh, did the the, uh, the top ten list, like, he never meant to do that. He was, like, that was always a mistake. His fingers were meant to, like, tightly grip the pencil. But just, he got nervous after those top ten lists. That's true. He's, he made many mistakes, David Letterman. <laughs> 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 you 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 could say that. I mean, some would say. Um, <laughs> if you want to listen to a history of mistakes on my part, one of the things that one of the things that David Letterman did that was not a mistake was redefining late night TV for a new generation. Some might say it was Generation X. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they loved it back in the eighties. They loved them. Absolutely, like David Letterman. You know, TV legend. TV exactly. legend. Yes. Um, if you want to hear though my history of mistakes and very few from Matt, uh, we have entire you know nine. This will be once you're listening to this, ninety three episodes to listen to. You found one of the three ways, but there are three ways to listen. There's the pro wrestling only feed, which is us and other podcasts, including a gigantic, ginormous archive. There's just a regular through the years feed, which is just us. And then there's the YouTube feed, which very few people use, but we get one or two very nice comments often every month. And, uh, Matt, we get, like, once a month, like, it tells us not only how many more people signed up but and how many views, but, like, how many minutes they watched. And even though, like, the minutes and views we get from YouTube are, like, the tiniest crumb compared to the numbers we – that at least – I mean, I, haven't, I don't know what our download numbers are now, but as of a few years ago, I knew what they were, and they were way bigger than what we get on YouTube. But, like – I was looking at the the monthly YouTube email last month, I mean yesterday, and it was like 33 hours from like one new follower. So it was just like – like I was just trying to think, I don't want to listen to my – like this is I think a good podcast. It's, I think it's the best thing I do, probably not the best thing you do. You touch people's lives and are a good person. But like – um, Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking, like, I don't want to hear myself talk in a month for 33 hours. Like, I can't imagine someone listening to, like, 33 hours of us, like, in a month. Like, like there are people in my life who I have talked less to in, in a month, and I know they've gotten sick of hearing me in a month's span. Don't, don't discourage the people from listening to us. Listen, if they want to waste their lives, it's their problem. Look. There are way better uses of your time. I will be confident enough to say there are some worse uses of your time too. So, um, yeah, going on those um, those QAnon message boards, right? It's the worst <laughs> use of your time. <laughs> We're like two spots above Q, trolling QAnon message boards. Well, well, not trolling actually. That'd be that'd be a good thing. Um, that sounds like something you would do. <laughs> when I was young and crazy, Matt. But um, uh, when you were a spry young thirty-four, you would have done it. <laughs> oh, okay. Before I get too depressed, um, 
we have a bunch of news stories. This was a this is going to be an episode I think where the backstage stuff and the news tidbits might be more interesting and more numerous than what we actually have to cover on the show. But first, before we even get to all of the news, which is a ton surrounding the show we're covering today, unscripted too, there was a bunch of little tidbits I gleaned from the newsletters and the websites when I was researching what was going on in Ring of Honor between the last show we covered and this show. So let's go to them. Matt, the first thing I got is just a small thing. It's very minor, but it's an example of one of my favorite little observer, wrestling observer newsletter quirks, which is when Dave Meltzer like publishes a story and then one or two issues later publishes the exact opposite and makes like no mention of why he got it wrong, why the story has changed. It's just a 180. So here's something from the observer. Dave wrote, there is talk of Claudio Castagnoli moving to Mexico, so he won't be working in Ring of Honor any longer. He's been to Mexico in the past. So cut to like one or two um, observers later. Dave writes this, Matt. Claudio Castagnoli is only missing one or two Ring of Honor shows as he's just doing a three-week tour of Mexico. So, again, I don't know if there's a story behind this. I don't know if Dave just misheard something from a source. But somehow within the span of two weeks, we go from Dave going, Claudio's moving to Mexico and never working Ring of Honor again, to he's missing one or two shows. And do you think, Do you think Dave just forgot he reported the first thing? Maybe, because, you know, yeah, Dave, I mean, is a busy guy, but it is it, it is the kind of thing, if you read a lot of Observers, you will see this from time to time where, like, Dave will correct things. But he, but he, he never acknowledges, like, oh, this is a retraction. I printed the wrong thing before. It's just like, here's yeah. the right thing now. Yeah, he won't he won't acknowledge he, that he won't say it's a correction. And he won't really even acknowledge why he made a mistake or why there was, like, a, a misreading of something. It's just, okay. It turns out this is drastically different. Here we go. But um, I just thought that was cute. That's a good example of one of my favorite little melterisms. But next up, we get another thing that lets you kind of know where um, talent was in, in Ring of Honor and TNA's relationship at this time. From the Observer's TNA section, Dave would write, there have been no official discussions regarding TNA and Matt Seidel, although Jeremy Borash went to a Ring of Honor show a couple weeks ago and said he was impressed by Seidel. The reason TNA is open to now using Low Key is because Jeff Jarrett and Low Key talked on the Doncaster England show and smoothed everything out. Low Key is likely to be used both as a tag team with Homicide as well as adding new matches to the top singles X Division programs. Did did, did, did they ever team Low Key with Homicide in TNA? I, I don't remember that. I guess it, I didn't watch it so closely though. I guess it's I'm, possible. Uh, we'd have to have someone like Garrett Kidney that, but like uh, I don't think Low Key was in LA when he was. He came in. He was Senshi. I don't think he was part of LAX. And Homicide was LAX. So you would think they wouldn't really be a regular thing, right? But. You know, it's interesting. There's like a few names that kind of get flowed out from Ring of Honor during this time of TNA. And some make it, but some don't. Like Matt Seidel, he never – I mean he eventually works in TNA many years later. But He goes you know, to WWE um, and gets a more, is more prominent there than he is in TNA until, like you said, many years later. Yeah, and, and I think that's also another thing, which is I think there were also – I don't know. I'm not saying Matt Seidel was a case of this. But for every wrestler, I think around this time that like jumped from the indies to TNA, I think there were some wrestlers that were like – I forget the specific ones, but I definitely remember hearing stories of like certain wrestlers being like, I don't know if I want to go to TNA until I'm sure WWE doesn't want me because this might hurt my chances with them or I don't want to be tied up. Like there was, do you think Danielson was in that camp? I wonder, you know, or I think I recall, and we might have even covered on through the years. Like I recall one time someone saying like, and it was probably around this era, someone saying like, you'd be surprised that some of the wrestlers that know Danielson aren't like, 
pushing as hard for him in TNA as you'd think. Like, like it was a, like a very weird, vague story from something like The Torch or something. Like, yeah, yeah, but mm, I don't know. I don't know how much I buy it. Like, what, it's, it was sort of like a one-off, like kind of rumor kind of thing, you know. What? And I don't think anyone ever really expanded on that. I've never heard anything about it before or since. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, moving on, the we go to the Pro Wrestling Torch now, and Matt, this one is great. Like, this one kind of shocked me when I was reading this because it was like. I didn't remember this quote because it's a minor quote, but I feel like for the through the years verse, it's a big quote because I did not expect Gabe Sapolsky to be like this self-aware about the thing we're about to cover here. So this is from the torch. Gabe Sapolsky tells the pro wrestling torch. There's a running joke with him and Austin Aries regarding the women's division in ring of honor quote me and women's wrestling is like WWE and the cruiserweight division where they always say they're going to do something with it, but nothing ever happens. Like, I was like, wow, like at least Gabe was aware of it because we always talk about that. You know, people talk about it to this day, but like Gabe, even himself there, I mean, like he is very aware that like, you know, this was something in Ring of Honor where every few months he'd be like, you know, weren't we covering like a year ago, Gabe saying, you know, there's going to be more women's wrestling in Ring of Honor, you know, this year. And then there was like one or two women's matches and then it just stopped. And yeah, it seems uh, like we've gone through that already like two or three times, but at least Gabe seems to be aware of it. Well, I guess it kind of took Shimmer and Dave Prezak to really get even like a little bit more women's wrestling in in ROH, you know? And, you know, and they still never, I mean, they pretty much never, at least during the Gabe era, really go for it with, with the women's division. But, you know, there's a steadily, in, there's a steady increase starting in like, I guess, mid to late 2006, and then you get some, you get some more substantial matches in 2007. But yeah, Gabe never really does much with women's wrestling, Evo- and evolve either, right? Like pretty, pretty yeah. much, yeah. It's funny that um, the story is that Gabe saying it's a running joke between him and Austin Aries because I was thinking, oh, why would it be like, why would he and Austin Aries be talking about this? But then I realized Austin Aries was dating dating Lacey at this time, who I think was one of the most prominent women's wrestlers on the u.s indie scene at this point and working in regularly in ring of honor as a manager and occasionally wrestle so i could see her kind of venting to aries even like i wish we could get some matches here you know this would be nice like i yeah. could see you know that being a conversation but i wonder like because because like what, what was roh's involvement with shimmer like i know they like promoted it and they sold it on their store and stuff but like was there any like roh financial support for shimmer at this time like did that was that part of the the deal I have no idea. I mean, obviously, Shimmer was. They called it. They called it a sister promotion. Yeah, and it was, but but it was also a much more obviously like reserved. In terms of like, didn't they always used to do like two or three shows? Usually, like two shows taped at once. Yeah. on the same night. So they were. I mean, I have no idea how much it cost to run Shimmer. I imagine it was never a huge money maker. I mean, it is now sadly defunct. But, um. So if it did get financial backing, I imagine it was not obviously not the same financial backing because it seemed like they had to work really hard to make just to make those shows possible. But um, next we go into some pro wrestling Noah news at this time. Some interesting little tidbits here. Wrestling Observer. 
Uh, Dave writes, given the strong reactions to its top wrestlers like Kenta Kobashi and Kenta on shows outside of Japan, Pro Wrestling Noah is for the first time thinking of the global market. The idea is to try and market merchandise and especially DVDs in North America and Europe. Kobashi, Kenta, and Naomichi Marafuji are likely to be wrestling more matches abroad over the next year. The promotion has even rented out a house in London where its wrestlers will live when working in Europe. Well, this- what, a re- what a reality show that would have been. <laughs> oh, that's what wasn't that what the WWE Network show Russell House was about? It was all about Kobashi. Yeah, Kenta Kobashi and uh, Naomichi Marafuji living in London. Yeah. <laughs> um, the promote. So yeah, um, its wrestlers will live working in that live in that house when working in Europe. Well, this doesn't seem like a big deal. It is as Kenta and Marafuji are missing two Noah house shows in Japan on um, March 25th and 26th to do a March 25th Ring of Honor show in New York. In the past with this company and all the big companies when major Japanese full-timers work a big overseas show, it is always between tours. So I thought that was kind of just interesting of how quickly like the relationship with Noah and Ring of Honor seemed to strengthen where the idea that you're sending, you know, two of your more prominent, I mean, the juniors at this time were not pushed as heavy as the heavyweights in Noah, but like, you know, you're sending a couple pretty prominent wrestlers to miss a couple shows just so they can work on Ring of Honor show. It's kind of crazy because it's almost like they're walking through a door that they're not allowed to walk through, you know? <laughs> Some kind of unwelcome... Banned door. It's a banned door. Um, the, um, um, it's, yeah, the, this... This Noah thing, you know, it's it's funny because if they came along, if this if this all happened a little bit later, Noah probably could have done pretty well, like with a, you know, international like streaming and stuff like that. Because I mean, they were the at least in term for American fans, they were the hottest promotion in Japan at this point. I don't know how extensive it was because I didn't really get this channel. Usually, I just was busy doing other stuff. But I know what Canada I mean we still have it but the Fight Network which was the like 24/7 wrestling and MMA channel here for a little while at least or at least for a few select ma- I don't know if it was for a few shows or a few select matches but they they redubbed like English commentary I think with Moro Ranello over like major pro wrestling Noah matches and aired them on Canadian TV so what year was, would that what years would that have been I'm not even sure it would have been a long it probably would have been somewhere you know Probably around this time, maybe a year or two or three later, I would guess. But but I was just thinking that that was probably tied into there was there was a moment where not only was Pro Wrestling Noah like the hottest above New Japan Japanese wrestling promotion, but they were trying to yeah, like you were saying, maybe a little ahead of their time in the sense of if it was today, they probably could have had gained more traction when they were as hot as they were. But unfortunately, I think it just I wonder what's changed. That is it just the streaming. Be, making it so much easier to watch this stuff, or I—I I, I mean, I think I think it's mainly that. Yeah, and I think I think social media too. Yeah, probably a lot of reasons, but yeah, I would agree. It's probably streaming is the main one. But here's the other on um, pro wrestling Noah little story from the Observer, which I thought was interesting. Gabe Sapolsky was interested in doing a Samoa Joe versus Kenta singles match with Joe going over Kenta, likely to build for a Kobashi versus Joe two match later this year. But pro wrestling Noah wasn't going to allow its junior heavyweight champ to lose a singles match and Kenta winning such a match would weaken Joe. So no singles match. I mean, it did. If as you'll see, as we watch, uh, you know, the next few Kenta appearances, they did continue to suggest a build to a Kenta versus Joe singles match. Um, they never do it, obviously, as is reported here, but like they definitely tease it a lot. 
And obviously, yeah. the, ne- the next two Kenta matches in ROH both do involve Joe. Now, I do, um, I, I do get why you maybe wouldn't want Joe to lose to Kenta if you were at this time. Because Ring of Honor at this time, you know, this was before Kobashi's injuries and things. Ring of Honor was still of the uh, mindset, I think, at this time that, like, late this year they were going to do Joe versus Kobashi too, which obviously never happens. But so I could see them saying if he loses to Kenta, is that going to kind of weaken Joe versus Kobashi too? But part of me feels like would it really have been that, like, wouldn't it have been worth it to have Joe lose to Kenta to have that match? Like, that would yeah. probably have sold a lot of DVDs. You know? Yeah, but at the same time, I bet that even if all that happened now, like, the same politics would be at play. Like, there'd be, like, issues. I mean, you could just see it with Forbidden Door, right? Like, yeah. over, you know, people losing where it's like, you, as, like, from a fan's perspective, you're sort of like, well, does it really matter? But to these promotions, like, I, they, they still seem to think it matters. <laughs> Absolutely. It's certainly a ring of honor at this time. Like we've talked about in the past, like um, all the indie kind of shenanigans with they not wanting them ch- their champions to lose on indies unless it was like kind of a disputed finish. You know, certainly ring of honor on their end was no stranger to wanting to really protect their champions. So I'm sure they would have to understand no one being like, eh, we don't want Kenta losing to uh, Samoa Joe even. But um, next we go to uh Pro Wrestling Torch, I thought this was kind of an interesting quote from Gabe Sapolsky. A Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky also explains to, the, explains to the Torch, what differs Ring of Honor from WWE and TNA? Quote, my feelings are that Ring of Honor needs to be different, and that style makes us different from WWE and TNA, he says. And I believe this came after a quote talking about Brian Danielson's wrestling style. Gabe continues, WWE, of course, has the sports entertainment style that won't have the hard-hitting aspects of the Ring of Honor style. TNA is more geared to spots with the X Division, and I feel they're doing the right style for TV. They need to blow people out of their seats on TV, and that's what they are doing. I would do the same thing if I were them. We don't have to worry about Ring of Honor fans changing the channels if there is a building match or a match heavy on storyline, because they will be a captive audience watching the DVD, so that makes it a style that we have the opportunity to present. I thought that was interesting just because it did make me think of something that usually don't think of one big difference between, you know, indie wrestling or and just shows that you pre buy on DVD or streaming compared to television where, yeah, Ring of Honor could do things that the major league promotions could do in the sense of once you buy a ticket or once you buy a DVD, as Gabe says, like you're a captive audience. You're not going to if a match is a little slow or one segment doesn't work for you, you're not going to abandon the show where you look at every week with the TV rings, even to this day, how people an- agonize over the quarter hours, like, oh, this talking segment, you know, lost 75,000 viewers. That's a, uh, that's an issue Gabe never, or, and, and really any indie promoter never has, which I, in a way, I actually prefer that kind of wrestling. I, I like the idea that you can do things that maybe aren't always going to be like moment to moment grab you, but they're building for the future. And I feel like TV, on TV wrestling, you see less of that because people are just so scared about sacrificing any ratings to build something larger for the future or, or a more slow building, like technical match, those kind of things. I agree with that. Although, you know, I will say, and I know I don't want to make this about AEW, but I sometimes think that AEW kind of takes that TV format over to their pay-per-views where they don't really need to, you know, like yeah. there's, there's a little bit of like, uh, you know, sometimes you watch the pay-per-views and you're like, okay, you can do a little bit less and slow down a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's a minor complaint. Those pay-per-views are usually really excellent. But since we're talking about it, I figured I would mention that. But, you know, you're right. Like, I I mean, it's very clear. Like, you watched TNA during this era and you watch ROH during this era and, you know, 
the the pace is just dramatically different. Like it's and you know a lot of times it's the same wrestlers wrestling, but the pacing is just dramatically different. And I think it's it's probably good for the wrestlers that they got to do both of those different styles and become adept at both of them. And I would imagine it was just more relaxed because I could imagine like working the indies compared to TV. I mean, I imagine, you know, they still want to fit everything to a three hour DVD at this point in Ring of Honor. But like if you go a couple minutes longer, I imagine it's not going to be as big a deal as if you do that on a television show or well, even a pay-per-view. Well, they cut out the pre-match. They cut out the entrances when they need to. You know, they they fit yeah. they fit what they need in. You know, in ROH, if, if the shows got really long, they would put it out on a double DVD. And and soon the DVDs, uh, I think, starting in a few shows, would become the three and a half hour DVD. So they'd have they'd have even less to worry about as far as cramming things in. So yeah, and I mean, we'll see on this show just like how much more relaxed the uh, the the wrestlers are in terms of telling their stories and interacting with the crowd and stuff. And TV wrestling, a lot of that, you know, that kind of loose crowd work is pretty much non-existent because they just don't have the time to do it. Yeah, although we'll talk about – they may have gone to the – if you want to see some relaxed ass, <laughs> you're going to see them on Unscripted too. But, right. Uh, this, 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 is, this, this was the sort of show where they're almost like – almost like forgot that they were recording it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to put it. So last couple of notes before we can finally get to all the crazy stories behind the show we're actually covering. But on the Pro Wrestling Torch, Ring of Honor wrestlers appeared on WB11 Morning News with Julie Chen early in the morning on February 10th in New York. Prince Nana and Allison Danger appeared. Jason Blade and Claudio Castagnoli also reportedly wrestled a match in a ring set up outside. An angle was also taped with Chris Hero that didn't air on television. So I, it's funny. Like, I remember, I think they still air clips of it, like the segment of Julie Chan and, and uh, WB10 when they first came to New York, I believe, for Manhattan Mayhem. But I forgot they apparently did. I don't know if there's any footage of this. They did a whole, like, second one of these to promote this show where you had yeah. you know, probably The Ring. And, I don't remember this one. I don't remember this one at all. Yeah, I mean, the, even the an untelevised Chris Hero angle, like, because Chris Hero isn't even on the show. So, but the day before, he's shooting a, a, a angle. Like, that's pretty... Yeah, that's pretty wild. I, I completely forgot about that. My assumption then would be that Chris Hero was supposed to be on this show, and then, you know, because of the same reason other guys weren't, like the snowstorm, he just couldn't make it out. That's the only thing I could think of. And that brings us to the final note, something I want to ask you about, Mac, is that I would start hyper-analyzing this after reading this note. Ring of Honor owner Kerry Silken handles the production side of things in Ring of Honor and is always looking for ways to improve the overall product that Ring of Honor delivers. A new sound and lighting system was recently installed at Ring of Honor Live events. Matt, have you noticed, like, now I was starting to, like, I was trying to think, like, after reading this, I was watching this show, Unscripted 2, I was like, is the lighting better? Eh, maybe, like, I was starting to, like, hyper-analyze, like, if there has been like a drastic improvement in the lighting and the sound, I haven't really noticed it, but I don't think they're lying that they've probably upgraded the systems. I mean, the lighting looked solid. It looked, it was not distracting here, but I haven't really noticed a new sound and lighting system in like a tangible way. I remember in like real time, they would occasionally promote that. Like we got new lighting, we got new this or that, and I wouldn't really notice. But maybe it's the sort of thing that's so subtle you need to have a keen eye to, to really notice it. But yes, no, I agree with you. I There's nothing that stands out as being so different over the previous few months. And that brings us 
to maybe one of the weirdest shows in Ring of Honor history, our show for today. We finally have got to it after 93 episodes. We've reached this point in the timeline. Unscripted 2 took place February 11th, 2006 at Sports Plus Entertainment Center in Lake Grove, New York, from a report crowd of 500 fans. So why is the show Unscripted 2? Well, for those who don't know, haven't been with us since near the beginning, Unscripted was a show title name I think Gabe would end up using three times while he booked Ring of Honor. It was always reserved for a shows where so many changes happened to the card that Gabe just felt like, fuck it, we'll call it Unscripted. And that's basically the point of the show was how so many things have had to change and so much is in the air. And there were a couple big reasons why this show had to change. The first one was probably the most anticipated match on this show originally was low-key versus Roderick Strong, I believe, in the first time those two would have ever wrestled anywhere in the world against each other in a singles match. And that got canceled, obviously, because Loki uh, had a falling out with Ring of Honor and left them permanently, which is something we covered extensively on the last episode. But the second thing that happened was there was apparently a gigantic snowstorm in the New York area at... Uh, uh, the, the weekend of the show. And so the day before, or apparently the day of, we'll get to the conflicting stories on that. TNA informed basically everyone that works for them, because uh, the, the day after this spring Marshall, the Sunday of this weekend, was uh, TNA's Against All Odds pay-per-view 2006. That was the one with the uh, the Joe Daniels, um, AJ Styles three-way rematch, and Christian Cage winning the world title from Jeff Jarrett. Anyway, um, TNA tells all their talent, like, cancel your weekend bookings. You've got to take an early flight to get to the TNA pay-per-view because we're worried that, like, flights are going to cancel. You're going to get stranded with and you're not going to be able – you're going to no-show the pay-per-view. And we'll get to the, all the effects of that. So anyway, I kind of thought – just my mis-memory was that the huge surprise Ring of Honor booked was, like, a last-second thing – to make up for all the TNA talent missing. It wasn't. They were teasing this huge mystery surprise that they that is kind of the center of the show as a make good just for the low-key Roderick Strong thing, and they were doing it like in the media days before the show even started. So we'll go first off to the Pro Wrestling Torch. This is a quote from Gabe. I know our fans were looking forward to the Roderick Strong versus Low Key match, as was I, supposedly told PW Torch columnist Pat McNeil during his Torch VIP audio update last week. Quote, in order to make up for that, we have to come up with something big. Fortunately, that something big came along. We're always about giving the fans more than their money's worth and keeping our good faith with the audience. He said he knew that they would have to deliver something huge that would, quote, blow the people away, unquote. He said usually when they have a cancellation, they come up with something better. He pointed out that when Steve Carino canceled a match with Samoa Joe, CM Punk versus Samoa Joe lasted 60 minutes and was a match of the year. Fortunately, Gabe says, something fell in our laps and we were able to take advantage of it. So that surprise, of course, I'll just spoil it here, would be that they convinced they were able to get CM Punk to work one more Ring of Honor show, even though at this point he had been working for months as a WWE contracted talent, working in their Ohio Valley Wrestling Developmental Territory. So what is the story? How the heck did uh, Ring of Honor get a Ring of Honor, I mean, a WWE contracted wrestler to get to do a show. And by, and by the way, by the way, before you tell the story, I should just yeah. note, I think most people 
on the ROH message board pretty much figured out what this surprise was based on the way really? Gabe was talking pretty quickly. Maybe not most, but a lot of people. I remember a lot of people thinking the Punk would be there based on the way Gabe was talking because it was sort of the the idea was like, what else could it be, you know? And just remind me, were you at the show, Matt? No, because of the snowstorm. I, I was going to go, and I was really upset that I didn't go because I was, I was hyped. But like I – um. Yeah, it, so just um, for the record, with the snowstorm, it, it was it really started the night of the show. So it wasn't it wasn't as bad. Like it wouldn't have been as bad on the way there as it would have been on the way home. But like it ended up with like tw- almost like twenty seven inches of snow falling in New York City. Wow. Yeah, it was like it was a really really bad blizzard. Like there's a whole Wikipedia entry just on this storm. <laughs> like it w- it was a big one, and um, that show was was pretty far from where i lived like in the snow would have been really far yeah it would have been it would have been rough going i i would love to hear about from these wrestlers like what it was like having to get out of there cuz it was like deep in long island like to hear what like what it was like to get out of there that night after the show or the next day but um but yeah no it was that was a no joke snowstorm yeah 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 like that 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 will, that will get referenced multiple times during the show, including basically we start to see the snow the, the evidence of the snow snowstorm right at the end of the show. So there are kind of they're kind of conflicting stories about the punk thing, not totally conflicting, but we'll go to the main more most detailed one first, which is uh, Dave Meltzer's story from the Observer. Dave wrote. The big surprise for the Ring of Honor show was the return of CM Punk. Punk made the deal with Gabe Sapolsky, approaching Sapolsky with the idea to do a farewell when Sapolsky was in a lurch when Low Key pulled out. Punk asked Tommy Dreamer for permission to do the date, and he agreed under these conditions. He couldn't be advertised. He couldn't do a job. It was a one-time only thing, and he couldn't be in the ring at any time with anyone from TNA. It exploded at Raw two days later. Dreamer agreed to it, but never told John Laurinaitis or anyone else, and then went to England over the weekend to do an indie date. At TV, Triple H and Stephanie McMahon went to him and asked why he allowed a WWE wrestler to do a show that included so many TNA wrestlers. Even though it was two days later and everyone on the internet knew, Laurinaitis was totally blindsided since he was never told by anyone ahead of time and had no idea. There was immense heat on Punk with the... Well, let me just with the belief he did it without permission, and later when it came out that Dreamer had given him permission, the heat sw- switched to Tommy Dreamer. Punk came to WWE with heat because he had a big indie rep, and after his first TV match, which the company then edited off the show because Triple H made the remark that he couldn't work, he could only simulate work, it became a doctrine among many. Triple H, Mike, Shawn Michaels, and Arn Anderson were all negative on him, with Anderson saying he just copies Japanese moves rather than works. His relationship with Maria doesn't help him either. At the same time, Punk and Brent Albright, doing their long matches, have been carrying Ohio Valley Wrestling. Paul Heyman was protecting him in Ohio Valley Wrestling, heavily laying out his promos and giving him long matches under the guise of getting the guys ready for pay-per-view main event style matches. At one point, Punk may have been fired over this, but in the end, there doesn't look like there will be any fallout. So that's the first story, like... It, it just really takes me back, man. Like, like these are things I feel like a few years later, maybe fans or even fans today wouldn't be able to understand. Like, how you know it, WWE treated TNA a lot more like they treat AEW today. Like the idea of you know, yeah, Punk can work here, but we don't want even want him in the same ring, like not even wrestling for a segment with anyone from TNA. And then you know, you read that story and the complaint that the wrestlers have 
I mean, that Triple H and Stephanie have, according to Dave, you know, is not that Tommy Dreamer let CM Punk work outside Ohio Valley Wrestling for a show. It was that he let him work on a show with a bunch of TNA wrestlers. Although, ironically, most of those TNA wrestlers don't show up. But just a, a weird thing. And just it also reading the story, it's a reminder just of how much heat CM Punk had. And, like, it does kind of say something about how much CM Punk loved Ring of Honor and how the kind of ballsy he guy he was. Where when he was – like, he refer- – we'll get to on the show. He jokes about the kind of – the heat he has in WWE even at this time. And he's still willing to, like, take this risk. Like, he's very – where we'll get to his mic work later that he is going to probably ruffle some feathers by doing this. It just goes to show how damn talented he is that he overcame all of that because there was like – he did have a lot of heat and there were so many powerful people lined up against him that were trying to sabotage him and make sure that he never became a star. And damn it, like he took him a while but like he became as big of a star as – you know, people like Gabe Sapolsky and a lot of indie fans predicted he would be. So, you know, it just shows like that guy was something special, is something special. Yeah, I, I don't believe the cream always rises to the top because we've seen some great talented wrestlers that haven't. But like, yeah, there's some systemic factors at bay. But yeah, if you want to make the argument though, like that it does. The best case you have, I think, is CM Punk in WWE because he had everything going against him. They don't, he didn't have the look they liked. He didn't have, he wasn't small, but he didn't really have the huge size they liked. He didn't have the attitude they liked. He, you know, he had all the tattoos. He could be prickly and rob people the wrong way. He was opinionated. He had like that indie, you know, legend kind of thing that WWE at this point really resented and tried to stamp out wherever they could. He ended up quickly becoming friends with Paul Heyman. He slept around with all the women, which in the weird world of wrestling, like you get judged if you have, you know, it seems like in wrestling, there are so many stories over the years of like management in companies, especially WWE getting mad if like you sleep with a woman that they think is too hot. Yeah, I, I think I think he slept around with all the women. It's kind of a glib way of putting it like he had he dated women that management thought were too good for him. Like, and that's why he got in trouble. But I mean, so if you want to go, like he is the example of the cream rising to the top. I would say, I would say what the, what it is, is like, yeah, the cream doesn't always rise to the top because there are systemic factors that keep them. But the, maybe you could say the like, 0.1% 0.1% of the creamiest always rise to the top. Like, because like, you know, punk is just like an all time, like generational talent. Like, and like those guys, him and Brian Danielson, like they rise to the top. If Samoa Joe in his prime would have come to WWE, he would have risen to the top. You know, like, like those guys, you know, if you're even slightly below like that all time great level, you're not going to, it's you're these, you know, you might get screwed by the system. But those guys, I mean, even they got screwed a little bit by the system. I mean, Punk and Danielson. So even they didn't, I don't think, were able to achieve what they really could have achieved if they had, if they had the company fully behind them. You know what I mean? I now want the Matt Feuerstein cream. Matt Feuerstein, not Matt Feuer cream. Oh, well, maybe the Matt Feuerstein. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> even, I'm, even I'm disgusted. Even I'm disgusted by that concept. I want you to rank wrestlers on how creamy they are and how, you know, how strong, how, how likely, how thick a cream they are to rise to the top. Just never say Matt Foyer cream ever again. <laughs> nobody wants that. Nobody. Like, literally nobody. Matt, one day we're going to find someone that wants that. Even if you don't want I'm gonna I it. I don't want it. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be near someone who wanted it. 
<laughs> so, um, okay, now we'll get to the slightly conflicting story, ironically, from a, a source we don't quote much, and someone that very close to Dave Meltzer, Brian Alvarez on the Figure Four Wrestling Newsletter. And I like this not just because of the story, but wrestling newsletters used to be a lot more gossipy and kind of glib with what they would give out, and a lot more just, oh, I heard this kind of. And Especially with the torch and the figure four would do this more. This is the kind of story you, the way it's written that you will never see in a wrestling newsletter today. But let me read this. Brian Elvers writes, there is a ton of heat on CM Punk for a number of reasons. The stories of Punk rubbing people the wrong way backstage in WWE has been confirmed by so many sources that it's pretty much ridiculous for anyone to deny it at this point. Whether he means it to or not, he comes across as cocky, and a number of people have basically identified it as big fish in a small pond indie syndrome, which is what happens when a guy is a huge star in the indie scene and then gets called up to WWE and still has the attitude that he's a huge star, despite the fact that to the vast, vast, vast majority of the viewing audience he is just a guy all capitals from brian alvarez there is a belief that he's dangerous around the girls and the term used was girls mean that just because he might be hooked up with a particular girl means nothing or vice versa i don't know if that's the case or not but that's the belief he basically did the ring of honor show last weekend without permission the way it was described to me was that he asked the wrong guy and even that guy didn't give him permission to actually get in the ring and do a match there was a couple of reports immediately afterwards that his job was in danger it's been more than a week so things may have blown over so the elvis first off so the line about like i would have phrased that a bit better than there's a belief that he's dangerous around the girls like that that's some kind of loaded language there like i don't yeah think yeah it. yeah i don't think i don't think they mean it i don't think he I, meant it the way that it sounds right killer yeah, that, that, yeah, he was dating a lot, but means means he was like, da- he was dangerous to the other jealous asshole guys. Exactly, that's what that's like, what it meant. <laughs> if you, I mean, for better or worse, it's better in some ways because we're more open to talking about, but worse because it because acknowledgement of how horrible things are. If you use the language today that a wrestler is dangerous around the girls. People would not be thinking about it the way I think Brian Alvarez attended here in 2006. Like, yeah, it was probably the, but it was probably he was probably quoted like he was probably yeah. quoting someone like that. Those probably weren't like purely his words. You know what I mean? But I guess both the Dave and the uh, the Brian stories could be true. But I guess you could say maybe it's possible that Tommy that that um Punk was supposed to go to John Laurinaitis instead of Tommy Dreamer, and Tommy Dreamer just told Punk you could appear at the show but you can't wrestle. But Punk just took it as I can wrestle. I, I don't know. But again, it, it is funny. Like there was, I guess, a brief time where for a second there until this kind of got smoothed over, people thought like Punk's career WWE could be over before it begins because of what turns out to be like a pretty minor appearance in the grand scheme of wrestling. Like it's kind of wild, but right. But still a huge aberration for what WWE would allow at that point. And so that brings us to the other half of the story. We'll touch on Punk a little bit later before we get to the show, but the other huge half of the story, which is the TNA part. So we'll go to the wrestling observer TNA section, TNA section. Dave writes, there were certainly a lot of chaos leading up to the TNA pay-per-view with a major storm on the horizon. TNA officials alerted all talent working indies on February 11th to cancel their dates and fly out when they could. Larry Zbyszko had to pull out of a date in Boston. The entire Dave Hebner show in Palmyra, Virginia, was canceled since much of his crew were booked on the pay-per-view. Terry Taylor told Gabe Sapolsky that the TNA wrestlers were being pulled from his show in Lake Grove, New York. Five were scheduled as Jay Lethal, Alex Shelley, and Homicide left for Orlando. 
Roderick Strong and Austin Aries, the Ring of Honor tag champs, although they were not scheduled for defense, did not. They did manage to get a flight out of New York right before the airport closed and made it to the TNA show. However, management was nothing less than furious at them for risking the show. A backup plan was booked with David Young and Elix Skipper taking their place against the Naturals. Well, time will tell what happens, and time usually heals all wounds, although in this case they are deep and it may be quite a bit of time, the Aries and Strong mini-push looks to be over. So, yeah, that's, I mean, I got a bunch of other news, but that's the first big thing, which is, yeah, um, I believe it was supposed to be Homicide and Colt on the show, I think. I know it was supposed to be Danielson and Alex Shelley for the world title, and obviously Loki and, and Robert Strong, but that had nothing to do with the TNA stuff. But, yeah, like, they lost some major pieces of talent. And you have to remember, this is also right after Abyss just, like, left Ring of Honor because they had a disagreement on his push level. Milan Collection AT was still in that weird nether region, or realm, or region sounds dirty, <laughs> where, where, like, Ring of Honor was still kind of announcing them for shows, but he wasn't making them, and it just turned out they had a falling out. Like, you know, this was a big deal. And, and again, it's... um. Well, I guess we'll get to the next story and then we can talk about it. But let me just go down to the next story. Back to the TNA section. This is the follow-up from that. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong are both suspended from TNA for two months, stemming from them working the February 11th Ring of Honor show in Lake Grove, New York, after being told by management to get out of New York early because of the expected storm. Aries' knee injury from the pay-per-view was an ACL sprain, but he's not missing any time over it. Oh, yeah, by the way, I should mention, not only do Roderick Strong and – um. Aries make the TNA pay-per-view. They work through a scheduled um, opener against the Naturals, and they lose. But Aries actually, like, hurts his knee and then works through the injury on the TV tapings after the pay-per-view, and then they suspend him. But anyway, um, Dave continues... This was one, this one was really controversial, but TNA is cracking down on its problem with people no showing. There's an argument that they did, that they did make the show, but the bottom line is they did defy the company and were lucky to make it as all the New York airports were shut down that night. They got the last flight out of Philadelphia before the airport was shut down there, and they ended up arriving several hours late to the show. I don't think anyone has ever even talked about whether or not when they will return, if this will be held against them when it comes to them getting a push. The impression I have is that putting them in a good position may be a long time coming. My experience in wrestling is time heals all wounds, and eventually talent can't be denied. So, you know, Dave Meltzer might think the cream rises at the top, but I won't say what you don't want me to say, Matt. Um, Dave, thank you. Go on, no, I just said thank you for not saying it. <laughs> so anyway, after saying that, Dave then writes, got you there. So about the talent can't be denied. So Dave basically almost like talking to us about what we just talked about, talking about that. Um, Dave says, anyone who thinks that boogers can't be vengeful long term don't know much about the business. Both of uh, Aries and Strong have TNA contracts, as do most of the TNA talent, where you get paid $300 to $500 per television show or pay-per-view show. So suspension also means no pay during that time. Aries did work TV with a knee ligament sprain before the decision was made not to use him. Larry Zabisco, Jay Lethal, Alex Shelley, Homicide, and everyone working for Dave Hebner all got early to beat the storm. Hebner had to cancel his entire show. They all had to give up payoffs because they couldn't risk missing a pay-per-view. Today did not offer to make up for the missed payday for the talent, but feels that with primetime national television, they don't want anyone who isn't putting TNA as its number one. They don't want anyone who isn't putting TNA as its number one priority. Ring of Honor gave bo- both um, 
Aries and Strong their first breaks and will likely give them a bigger push. It would have been hell on that show with five no-shows instead of three, so they may have done partially to save the Ring of Honor show. I can also see Gabe Zapolsky becoming leery of booking Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, or Christopher Daniels the night before TNA pay-per-view shows because it would hurt to have those guys advertised and not show up, particularly if it was to happen to so many of them on the same night. The counter-argument is that if TNA wanted everyone to miss their scheduled shot, they should have paid them for their missed night. Aries was trying to get a new deal in the discussions, and when that didn't happen, he decided to stay in New York and do the Ring of Honor show. There were those of the opinion that even when they come back, they shouldn't get pushed because they proved when the chips were down, they were willing to miss a major show. So, a lot to go over there first, Matt, but like, I think we've touched on this in the past, but it's worth repeating, like, it is a really, and I don't know exactly where I come down, it is really weird when you don't have an exclusive res- contract with one wrestling company when they make demands of you of the rest of your career, right? Like, these wrestlers are supposed to be really, truly independent contractors, and TNA is telling these guys, like, cancel your Saturday bookings, we're not going to pay you for those bookings, on the off chance that you might miss the show if you don't cancel them and take an early flight. It, 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 it is weird. On the other hand, like I'm just like you know, because it's uh, this is all like very complicated stuff. You know, like honestly, well, like it is. It. Yeah, like on the other hand, like they can push whoever they want. Yeah. Like they're not like and and decide. You know, I think suspending people for it is unless there's like specific language in the contract that says they can do that. Like I feel like I don't know how you suspend somebody for it, but. I get why they wanted everybody to not work the Saturday shows. Like it really was a really bad storm. Like they were lucky to get to the show. And um I on the other hand, they definitely should have paid people if they were gonna demand that they canceled bookings. Like I I can't imagine why they wouldn't have done that. Like what like what what does that do for morale to tell people you can't work your bookings and make your money, but we're not gonna make it up for you? Like that sounds crazy to me. Like I don't understand why like what where they think they were getting any loyalty from that. And it does seem like it did effectively end the strong and Aries push, like permanently during that era. Like I, I don't think they ever really got pushed again during that time period. I know, you know, Aries as as Austin Star would would have like little on again, off again pushes. I don't remember Strong. I don't even know how much longer Strong was going to be in TNA. It's kind of hard for me to remember. So uh, I did some research. Um, strong like ends up working some more TV, and then I think he leaves in like. April or June or something, and that that was worded in the newsletters as basically Strong decided he didn't want to sign a new deal with TNA and, like, Strong leaving TNA. And, yeah, you're right. Aries comes back way later, well, like, I think early 2007 or something as Austin Starr or late 2006, I forget. And he ends up leaving after a few months because he has another falling out with TNA because he, he – um, refuses to shoot some pre-taped promos for TNA because he thought it was one of his days off and he wasn't getting paid for them. But then he changed his mind, but then TNA apparently thought, well, you have a bad attitude, so we're firing you again. Well, I remember in 07 what happened was Aries left ROH for a little while during that period where all the TNA guys did. Like Joe left and Homicide left and like like really left. And then Aries was back in ROH like a month or two later because he just was done with TNA. And that was in like the middle of 07. So, like, I don't know how much all of it, you know, hinged on this particular event, but in the end, 
that push that they were talking about did end with this particular yeah. uh, situation. So, yeah, I, I do see both sides. I, I, I think that if TNA was going to try to play it that way, they should have paid everybody. <laughs> like that, that feels like um, that feels obvious to me. Uh, you know, I don't, like you, if if these guys are going to give up bookings for you, you make it. You make good with it. Uh, you know, maybe they didn't have to, but if you want people to be loyal to you, that's what, what you need to do. Well, a very similar thing, if you might remember, happened when the Feinstein scandal happened in Ring of Honor because obviously TNA made all the wrestlers pull off all their scheduled Ring of Honor dates. And then originally they weren't going to pay them. And I believe after a bunch of the wrestlers complained and some public perception came down against TNA, I think they ended up paying them for like the first one or two dates. Well, this was only one night. So, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they could have paid I mean, imagine, I mean, I don't know how much it would have cost, but imagine like Dave Hebner had to cancel an entire show he was promoting. Like, I wonder how much money, he, like what kind of bath he took on that. You know? Yeah. So what, so what do you think about this whole situation? Like, do you come down on the side? Um, I can see both sides. I, I kind of feel like one thing I don't like that TDA did was they weren't really paying the wrestlers incredible money, but it was just more oh, we're a regular thing. And even it says in that story, TNA felt like they should be the top priority because, hey, we're on TV. We're giving you exposure. But it's kind of like I, – I, I just – I feel like sometimes trading exposure for my – that is an important part of wrestling. But it feels I, – I, well, who I – I guess I like like you. I feel for bo- I I can see both sides, but my sympathy generally in life falls with like the worker, the talent, and I just feel really bad. Like the losers in these all these situations are the talent because you know guys lost pushes on one side or the other, guys lost jobs on one side or the other, and a lot of wrestlers lost. You know, well not a lot, but you know everyone that Dave Hebner show and like the four guys that pulled out of this Ring of Honor show, they all lost a payoff. You know, I mean, that that's the, that to me, like, that's the one thing that to me is black and white is that they should have been paid for the show they missed. Like, yeah. it feels it feels like a complicated situation. Um, but if you were going to make somebody miss a show, you have to pay them. <laughs> like, if, if you're the kind of thing yeah. that's probably going to happen very often, like the storm of this. Well, maybe there's now with climate change, but generally. No, yeah, they're right, right. But they mention like that, like the ROH should be wary about booking like Joe and Styles and stuff the day before TNA pay-per-view. It's like eh, this sort of situation will not come up almost yeah. ever. Like how many times are there going to be like the storm of the decade or whatever? Like you, you were saying earlier, such a big story that like you can find like still like wikipedia pages or something on this blizzard and you know if that's not going to happen every single year or even every let alone every month so yeah maybe a little paranoid and again if you're tna maybe then this is such a weird like for act of god type thing you can afford to pay everyone one time to miss a show but yeah and then the other thing is like the uh, the backlash against Strong and Aries, like I get why you'd like TNA management would be annoyed at them, but like they were in the opener, like chill out, like they they got a payday for a company that yeah. is giving them a big push, like they were wrestling the Naturals, yeah, like yeah, in an opener of a you know the, it was not the end of the if they had to do their back, which was that David Young and whoever I forget to replace them, the card would have not like no one's complaining for their money back. Right. They went to the show. It's not like they no-showed on purpose. They were just like, 
they sort of kind of risk not being able to get there and that non-important match having to be changed. Like that's, that's what would have happened. Like they were, they, if anything, they went, they went above and beyond for, uh, for the company. So I, I definitely like the, the, the thing that I see TNA side on is like, I get why they wanted people to miss the Saturday shows. I get why they were worried, I guess is what I would say. Punishing Roderick Strong and Austin Aries I don't really see their side. And certainly not paying people for missing those shows, I definitely don't see their side on that one. And I mean, Aries comes back to TNA multiple times, including he eventually becomes world champion years and years down the road. But Roderick Strong never comes back. And again, I think he left under his own volition. So they may have like, you know, poisoned a relationship with a really talented wrestler by doing this. Yep. I mean, I have no idea if that plays into why he never came back ever, but... Um, well, you know, even if it doesn't consciously, it's like this is part of Roderick Strong's experience with TNA. Yeah. You know, that that he risked himself to get to Philadelphia, to get on that flight, to get to the show, to work that to work that match, and what he gets for it is basically you're you're suspended and we're mad at you. Yeah, and one other interesting from that note, and we still got some other news things, but I thought what was interesting was a little note in that paragraph I read, which was that Aries was talking to um tna about like we're negotiating a new contract and then when that they didn't want to do that then he decided to go work the ring of honor show so i uh, it sounds like there might have been a possible world where aries could no show no show the ring of honor show if they had made it financially worth his while but it sounds like tna did not want to do that so he decided well then i don't have reason to do this but Maybe not one hundred percent altruistic Ring of Honor loyalty from Aries. Not that I blame him. Nor that, it, nor should it, nor does it, does it have to be. You know, like you exactly. said, it's it's a, you side with the worker, not necessarily a company. At least that's how I see things. Also, I mean, he was trying to use leverage, and obviously it didn't work out for him. Yeah. But um, next, we go to another Observer story. There was no heat in Ring of Honor at all on Jay Lethal, Homicide, and Shelley missing the card because they understood the position they were put in. However, Aries and Strong are likely to be rewarded for staying and doing the show. Gabe Sapolsky says he just felt lucky that he didn't have Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, and AJ Styles booked for the show because losing all of them would have been really bad for the show. People weren't upset about the guys who were missing. Um, Yeah, that's another interesting note is this is the rare show. I mean, obviously, Joe had been recovering from injuries, but like, they didn't have AJ Daniels or Joe on this show, so they didn't have to worry about losing them to the booking. And the interesting thing is, I, I am sure probably in a way, Gabe did not hold it against those guys, but this marks a clear point, I feel like, where Gabe just realizes, like, it, I, I feel like he was kind of being careful with Ring of Honor, I mean, TNA talent to begin with. Like, we just told the story on the last show of, Abyss leaving because Ring of Honor because he wanted a bigger push and Gabe saying like I know he deserves a really big push but I don't want to push that many TNA guys to the top just in case and of course the very next show this happens and gives kind of makes Gabe look smart for thinking that way but the interesting I would say is even though they're saying okay you know Ring of Honor understands isn't going to hold it against these guys we know Jay Lethal's gone very quickly after this we know Alex Shelley is gone very quickly after this well Shelley not quite as quickly as Lethal but yeah but within months. Yeah. Le- lethal, lethal is like, what, one more show? <laughs> Something like that. It's pretty quick. And Alex Shelley, I think, is within just a few months. And obviously, they will continue to book Daniels and Joe and Homicide. But we, we definitely, at this point, after the show, it becomes more of a thing of Ring of Honor will book the few, like, ROH kind of legends, quote-unquote, 
that work in TNA because they're two biggest stars to like pass up. But anyone kind of in that middle tier, they're going to be much more hesitant about because of things like this. You know, um, I don't think that I don't think that policy works out so badly for ROH though. Like, I, I mean, we'll get to it as time passes, but I think it's good that they established their own identity and like there was a little bit of weirdness in trying to juggle some of the po- TNA politics during this era. So I think it ends up being okay when they just have to go exclusively like TNA free. And even Gabe, we, we read that quote near the start of the show about him trying to differentiate the Ring of Honor style from TNA and WWE. Well, it's a lot easier to differentiate your style if you don't share a lot of the same roster. So that would help them there. And, you know, there might have been times where TNA, like you having to choose, should I use this, like to not use a bunch of this TNA talent would have really hurt Ring of Honor. But this was an era where there was so much great talent on the indies that wasn't getting signed up. That you could just like lose Alex Shelley and Jay Lethal and guys like that and truck along just fine. Yeah, and they did. Like, I mean, at least in my opinion, they did. I mean, TNA never really, they never booked like a lot of these guys during this era. They never booked Nigel until after the whole WWE thing fell through. They never booked the Briscoes. They never booked Steen and Generico. You know, uh, Jimmy Jacobs, Tyler Black, like all these guys that ended up being big deals in ROH over the next few years, like ROH had them and didn't have to worry about TNA during that era. Like it, it worked out, I think, at least as far as like from the fans perspective, you know, I don't know about from like an ROH business perspective, which I guess is probably more important, but I don't know. So Austin Aries would end up telling the torch. They were justifying the actions they took, and I was justified in what I did, Aries says. It was a catch-22 for Aries and Strong, who felt an obligation to fulfill the Ring of Honor commitment, but wanted to ensure they worked in Orlando. Aries' reason for remaining in New Jersey for the Ring of Honor show, which, by the way, this was New York, guys, but anyway, uh, was to fulfill a commitment. It didn't matter that it was Ring of Honor. He would have taken the same approach if it was another independent show. However, Aries had to consider his work at the Ring of Honor training school as an example for his students to fulfill commitments. Aries knew it was a tough call to make. His goal was to put the incident behind him and return to Orlando when they ask him back and make some money for myself and TNA. Aries is currently signed to a preliminary contract. He is contracted for a specific number of dates in 2006, but the payoffs are not set. In addition, Aries has a provision written into his contract that allows him to fulfill Ring of Honor commitments, shows, working at the training school, etc., when those commitments do not affect his work in TNA. This situation fell into the gray area where both sides had to make difficult decisions. Aries is recovering for a sprained knee injury he suffered at the Against All Odds pay-per-view. Right now, the knee is just sore and there's no long-term damage. The injury occurred when Chase Stevens hit a shooting star press from the ring to the floor. Aries crashed down on his knee during the spot. Aries will take time off before returning to the ring at an independent show in Green Bay, Wisconsin on February, February 23rd. And wrestling for Ring of Honor on February 25th. If he tweaks the knee, he could be out of action for several more weeks. Um, well, imagine if AEW injuries had that level of specificity when they were reported on. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be like uh, Aries is just going to be gone for a while. We don't, you know, a- Aries is Aries is hurt, and play this fun quiz game to figure out what the injury is. <laughs> um, then the Observer came back with Austin Aries did himself no favors at all when he posted on his website the situation with TNA and his suspension. A few notes on that. 
The first thing is Aries claimed he was told he was suspended for two months. We're told there is no time frame that has been decided on, on regarding the length of his suspension, where apparently Aries lost a lot of points. It's not just by going on the web. They felt like he was handling it like an indie wrestler, but also because he claimed he was called by Terry Taylor on Saturday as he was going to the Ring of Honor show and told to fly to Orlando. The TNA wrestlers were all told on Friday night to go to Orlando. The belief is that Taylor called him on Friday and he lost credibility with the company, with his story, by publicly saying differently. But then this is another classic observer thing. They'll go right back the other way. Then I'm um, like a week or two later, Dave writes on the Austin Aries front regarding his suspension. A few notes should be added after checking with a few people. They all got word on Friday, not Saturday from TNA to get to Orlando and beat the storm. However, Gabe supposedly was called by Terry Taylor on at one PM on Saturday, the day of the show. And Taylor told supposedly that he was calling him before calling Aries or strong. Both Aries and Strong called Sapolsky within the next hour, each saying they had just gotten the call. Strong lives in Florida and was already en route to the show when he got the word. If both men hadn't appeared on the show, now, Matt, this is the biggest revelation from the research. I forgot this. We have a new match in the Pantheon. And maybe this might be the top match. This is probably my second biggest match of Ring of Honor matches that never happened, because I'm going to ask before I reveal it. Do you remember what could the match that could have happened on this show? On the on the show that we're talking about yeah, right now, unscripted too. And you're not talking about Strong versus Loki. No. Nope. I don't. I do not remember. This is below only Loki versus Joe Two as the biggest match we never got in Ring of Honor that was possible. So I couldn't believe this reading this. I, I know I'm building this up, but this is big. Like I don't think I can build this too up. So this is Dave writing in the Observer. Still, Dave writes. If both Strong and Aries hadn't appeared on the Ring of Honor show, Gabe Sapolsky had decided he was going to do a CM Punk versus Brian Danielson 90-minute draw. An hour <laughs> and a half match. He was going to do CM Punk versus Brian Danielson for 90 minutes. 9-0. Not 1-9. Nine, 9-0. Nine, uh, Dave writes, he couldn't get a finish out of that match since Punk was told he couldn't job, and obviously he couldn't have Danielson lose the title. Matt, Aries and Strong are great wrestlers. I'm glad they did the show in one way. I kind of wish they missed the show. I want to see, like, I don't even know if that would have been, like, a great match because 90 minutes, but, like, how differently would that show be remembered if Aries and, I mean, if, if Danielson and Punk worked an hour and a half match on this show? They could have just done it anyway, you know? Yeah. So, you know, may, maybe maybe that wouldn't have happened. There's a part of me that says that, that wouldn't have happened. I don't know. I mean, those are the two guys. Yeah, that, well, would've, that would have been, like, really game for it, yeah. I mean, Punk had worked a 93-minute match with Chris Hero. Uh, Brian Danielson is the lunatic who, the year, who two years ago before this wanted to work a nearly three-hour match with Austin Aries and like had to change his mind when you saw the crowd wouldn't want that. So I could see if any two guys were like game to do a, an hour-and-a-half-long draw, it would have been these two lunatics. But yeah, we never got I, – I can't believe I, I never remember that. That, that was apparently Gabe Sapolsky's idea. If Aries and Strong did not make the show, Gabe, if you're listening, is are you for real? For real? Like, <laughs> was that was that really something you were gonna do? Like, really, really? Anyway, I mean, he clearly told Dave that because I mean, he. Dave I know. I believe. I believe. I believe he told him that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
So anyway, Dave continues. Aries lives now in, in Philadelphia because he's the head trainer of the Ring of Honor School. Both Aries and Strong earn $300 per TV show appearance with TNA on their current deals. Aries in particular, since he runs the Ring of Honor School, earns more money from Ring of Honor than TNA. And Strong, being booked on between being booked on every Ring of Honor and FIP show, probably earns more than he does with TNA. TNA TNA's argument would be going on national TV, they'd be making doing more to make these guys into well-known nationally and even worldwide. Aries and Strong did have a tough decision. Aries and Strong, as well as Jay Lethal, Samoa Joe, and Alex Shelley, are all in TNA because of the breaks they were given in Ring of Honor. With a lot of key guys no showing Ring of Honor already that night, I can see where Aries and Strong, as Ring of Honor tag champs and who worked on every show, and whose careers were springboarded in that group, would show loyalty there. I also think that TNA should have at least offered to pay guys for the date they were missing. At the same to- by at the same token, in the end, TNA has had problems with guys missing pay-per-view dates, and it's clear it's no longer going to be tolerated, and it can't be. If it was a TNA house show versus a Ring of Honor house show, it's one thing. But I can see where TNA would feel that for wrestlers they have under contract, if risking missing the pay-per-view is part of their mindset, it's going to be hard to give them the ball. But so I guess that's the last major piece of news on that. But um I do think it's interesting to think that, yeah, like, they were actually probably the financial move, short-term at least, for these guys, for Strong and Aries, was TN, I mean, Ring of Honor, especially Aries, because he was double-dipping with the Ring of Honor Wrestling School, though he, I don't think it's going to be much longer for the Ring of Honor Wrestling School, but he was the head trainer for this class, and, you know, Dave agreeing with you, and, and me too, that the, TNA should have made the make good. The only other thing I w- I'm going to ask you about this, Matt, is I wonder if, like, we heard so many stories the years before in the newsletters about how so many people in TNA were jealous about the attention Ring of Honor got and how the Ring of, and Ring of Honor wrestlers that work in TNA would often praise Ring of Honor in the media more than they would praise working for TNA. I wonder if that has any small element of this, too. If part of it is just that TNA was like embarrassed by the idea that two wrestlers that worked for both companies, when they were put in a position where they had to pick, did not pick TNA. I can imagine some people in that company really not liking that. Yeah, but most of the wrestlers pick TNA, right? Like, yes. so, I mean, get over it. Yeah, I'm sure it's part of it. Every everything that could be petty, I'm sure, happens in this situation. So, I'm sure pettiness was part of it. Yes, if that's what you're asking. And so, finally, we just have three live notes, and then we can finally get to the show. Uh, we have a pre processing torch report from D Bacchus forty four. I apologize if I'm saying your screen name wrong. He wrote after the show. Punk, Strong, Nigel McGuinness, and Jarrell Clark all stuck around, thanked fans and signed stuff. Was it the best wrestled show? No. But the guys who stuck around in the end were all very approachable and very appreciative to all the fans. So, Well, not all, not all the fans, as we'll see at the very end of the show. <laughs> you got to say, that is pretty nice when you're in a big snowstorm to like, I mean, maybe yeah. those guys didn't have bookings the next night. Well, Strong did, actually. Like, that's the crazy thing. He, he includes Strong there. Like, Yeah, that, that is that is crazy, yeah. Yeah, that you would stick around and signing autographs. Like, to me, I'd be rushing immediately. But um, back to the Observer. These are a couple things to keep in mind, Matt, for you and I um, as we watch, as we review the show. Although I'm pretty sure we already have our opinions. But Dave wrote in the Observer, the reports we got about the show was that this show wasn't up to the usual Ring of Honor level. It was the first show where most of the response we got to it was negative. Although conceding the matches were, for the most part, were good, but the crowd response wasn't there. It was noted that the top guys were noticeably showing frustration at how hard they had to work to get the crowd of 500 fans going. And then figure four will add, um, the big surprise, <clears throat> surprise ended up being the return of CM Punk. Suffice to say, a lot of fans were let down. Crowd, still upset over everything that went down, was very quiet. 
and Punk, Danielson, and Strong were said to be annoyed at having to work extra hard to get them to respond to anything. Um, we'll get into it as we go through. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I'll save that for when like the yeah, stuff happens. I don't entirely agree <clears throat> with both how dead they say the crowd is. And the idea that these guys had to work extra hard or attempted even to work extra hard. But well, I, I, I have some opinions on all that stuff, but I guess I'll save it. Okay. Well, it's finally time, Matt, for the show. But I don't regret talking so much about the stories behind the show because honestly, I think those are kind of more important and more interesting than a lot of what we will talk about. But we will make it all interesting, Matt, because we are professionals. No, we're not. Like, we're literally not professionals. We are professional amateurs, Matt. No we one has it. ever paid us for this ever. Well, at we least not at least not me. I don't know what secret funds you got going on. But. Matt, we are heavy cream in terms of wrestling podcasts. So we opened the show with Colt Cabana backstage. He reminds us that he was off the previous two Ring of Honor shows because Commissioner Jim Cornette told him in Homicide that, he, the, that they needed to cool off. Colt asks how he's supposed to cool off, but then he says he sat in the corner of his Chicago apartment, Indian style, and thought a lot about life. Now, now I do want to make mention of the phrase since you said Indian style. That is an out-of-date not acceptable term anymore. He should have said crisscross applesauce because um, that's how he was. That's how he was sitting. But it is funny to think of like, oh, yeah, he grew up in the uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, like me, and they still said stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was definitely at my school too. Like we were not being told to sit down crisscross applesauce. Um, Colt says he thought a lot about life, but he didn't cool off. He gets at this point. Colt gets very philosophical. He talks about like the date of his birth, the date of his wrestling debut, and the day he was almost murdered in a wrestling ring. Colt says he don't believe he was almost murdered. Look at the story of King Kong Kirk, who was murdered by Big Daddy. Look at Man Mountain Mike, who while wrestling with Mike DiBiase fell to his death. Now, now, do you find that to be a controversial thing to say that? King Kong Kirk was murdered by Big Daddy because, as far as I know, he was cleared of responsibility legally. Um, I looked into this. Like, is that considered a for- like a, like something that's accepted that King Kong Kirk was murdered by Big Daddy? I think if you're wrestling a guy and an, even if an accident happens, I wouldn't consider that murder. I mean, I'm not an expert on the Brit rest, Matt. But um, I, well, I was looking it up, and it doesn't seem like it was considered by the law to be a murder. Yeah, I mean, isn't it something like Big Daddy splashed him and he had a heart attack? Yeah, it's something not. Like, yeah, it's but, not like. Um, it's not like with the Bruiser Brody, you know, where he was literally murdered. Which, yeah. I guess, I guess, part, you know, he didn't mention that. Maybe it was too raw. I don't know, but yeah. Anyway, just just thought that that stood out to me. Anybody uh, who's an expert on this, let me know. Did Did Big Daddy murder King Conker? Because <laughs> that's not what I read. Is Big Daddy a big? Daddy, uh, well, never mind. Well, he no, is, but no, that's that's not what this is. We just felt, I just felt the skim milk. I'm no longer creamy after that. Comp- that was a that was a bad attempt at something. Anyway, uh, Colt says dead, deceased, no longer. These people are. Colt recaps the Drano incident with homicide and says, "Ask his doctor. Ask his parents who got the phone call that day." Colt says he will never forget that day. He can't sleep. He doesn't talk to his friends. He doesn't shave. He hasn't had a haircut. He doesn't shower. Yeah, well, well, well. One thing is, he says, he says, well, the shower thing is shocking. But if he hadn't shaved since December, he would have had a much bigger beard, I think, than what he's showing here. Pretty short and not noticeably longer than it has ever been. Yeah, and yeah, and the beard especially, like that, like he just had stubble. And I know that I know that Cole Cabana can grow more of a beard than that. (laughs) 
he goes, he, Colt says he just sits in his apartment now and he thinks. Colt says he can't leave the sport he has a passion for and let Homicide be the winner and maybe do this again to the next guy. Colt says he wants to wrestle Homicide, but Homicide has said that he needs to be 100%, and that's fine. Colt says he'll take on any Rottweiler in the meantime and send a message to Homicide. As Colt's wrapping up his promo, he looks off camera and he says, what are you doing here? And when we don't see him, we hear a familiar voice, that of CM Punk, telling Colt that they need to talk. I thought this was I thought this was a really good promo. Just FYI, like there were some flubs, but like you know, I think he's get, he's getting better at these serious promos, and I thought this was a good one. Like I'm glad they finally put over that he felt like someone tried to kill him, and he did, I think, a good job of it. I, you know me, I've said before, I, I feel like cult series promos like walk the line between sometimes they're just the right amount of series, sometimes they're a little over the top. For me, I thought this was a little over the top. Like again, like. We just talked about the stuff about how he hasn't, you know, haven't shaved, haven't showered. Haven't yeah, but hair. but like, but shouldn't it be that. shouldn't it be over the top given what was done to him? Like, if remember when we watched Hell Freezes Over and it was like, why is this? We're seeing him and he's just there, but didn't someone just try to kill him? Like, yeah. this is the appropriate response to that. I think he could have just shaved off a few of those lines. There, there's a few points where it's almost like, yeah, he should be heavy into this and melodramatic even. But there are a few lines where it's just like, dude, we can tell that, that this isn't the thing. You know, we can tell you, you've been shaving. You, you just stopped shaving like probably four days before a Ring of Honor booking. But either way, um, next we get a three-way dance of Adam Pierce defeating Mitch Franklin and Pele Primo via pinfall in 50 seconds after he hit a top rope splash on both of them, like lined up side by side. So this was supposed to just be Mitch Franklin versus Pele Primo, two Ring of Honor students. But as the bell rings, Pierce's music, I mean, Pierce walks to the ring, the, not no music actually. He grabs the mic. He says, hold your horses, midgets, to the two Ring of Honor students and Speak of another phrase that you wouldn't probably hear wrestlers say today. The crowd chants, shut the fuck up at Pierce. Pierce mentions the big surprise that, you know, Gabe is plugging for the Ring of Honor show tonight. And the third match refund promise. So that's the other thing. This is mentioned on the show and it was mentioned before the show online and stuff like that's the other thing. Ring of Honor told the fans in the building that if you were not happy with this show, by the time the third match on the card was over, you could go and get a full refund. So... I can't imagine anyone took that refund, but that was the offer. That was kind of like one of the gimmicks of the show. So um, Pierce still a total heel here, by the way. Even after he kind of helped Cornette take on CZW at the previous show, he is totally heel here, insulting the fans. Pierce references seizing opportunity. He says he did when he beat up Necro Butcher in Ohio at the last Ring of Honor show. And then he talks about the students that are in the ring with him, saying that no one wants to see the Malky brothers wrestle. Pierce tells them to leave and save themselves a beating. Pele Primo at this point snatches the mic away, and he does what I would say about is some very confident mic work for a rookie. Yeah, for a guy who's like this, like the first time he's ever done mic work in front of an ROH crowd. Yeah, he was extremely. He had poise. Like he did. He yeah. did. A, he did a solid job. Yeah, poise is the perfect word. He like he introduces himself. He even he's like he, he's he like he doesn't say anything special, and it's very short. But also like. Watches like he actually gets a bit of a pop for a guy that probably the fans barely know, if at all. He is a better promo than several of the ROH regulars who have been doing it for a while longer than him. Definitely. Um, 
Pelly says they're not afraid of anybody, especially a 1970s blast from the past like Adam Pierce, at which point Pierce grabs the mic he's been talking that they've been talking with and he whips both Franklin and Pelly with it hard, like pretty damn hard in the face. He stiffs the fuck out of them with a couple kicks and a punch. He then pile drives Pelly. And when Franklin breaks up the subsequent pin, he beats him down, lines them both up. Hits a top rope splash on both of them and gets the double pin. Is beating so, on students with really stiff shots like that, like, is that like just what's considered paying your dues? Like, I don't know. It just, it still seems kind of gross to me. Like, I, you know, just like it feels like you should go easier on them, if anything. But I know that's just not what the wrestling business is. And that's why I could never make it there. And also, <laughs> and also I have no talent. That's the other reason. But anyway. Well, I also think there's just, you know, like a stiff like chop or a stiff kick to the safe part of the back and like a guy like basically pistol whipping you with a hard microphone. Like, I, I don't think that's that's appropriate, even if you weren't a student. I, I think that's well, right, of course. But, you know, like especially with a student. Yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't you go like a little bit easier on them? Like, because they're not. No, I, get what you're saying, I, I bet you that this is the kind of thing Adam Pierce would not have done to like Samoa Joe. You know, he's yeah. doing that probably because it is a student, because he feels like, yeah. I can get away with this. Right, and it's like, oh, they got to pay their dues anyway, right? Like, I mean, that's got to be the attitude. Um, the other thing we should mention is during this, um, on commentary, our team tonight is Dave Sapolsky and Lenny Leonard, no Dave Prezak. Gabe says he isn't even supposed to be announcing tonight, but a blizzard caused a number of flights to be canceled and also mentions a number of reasons wrestlers could not make the show. And he names off Alex Shelley, Jay Lethal, Dave Prezak, Low Key, Homicide, Matt Seidel, and Claudio Castagnoli. So, you know, Seidel, not part of that TNA thing. Low Key, not part of that TNA thing. But Gabe kind of vaguely, like, just lumping everyone together as, like, the storm stopped all these guys from coming. Gabe says they've arranged a huge surprise for tonight's show as a make good, and they've even told fans if they're not happy by the time the first three matches are over, they can get a full refund. So, um, after the squash, Pierce gets back on the mic and finishes his promo, says that he's going to sit at ringside and watch the magic happen. Pierce sets up a chair right in front of Green Lantern fan, who's sitting in the front row, and they end up trading words with each other. I think the crowd starts chanting, like, fuck green lantern fan or something like poor guy and i will say this about the pierce thing he never really explains why he was sitting at ringside like he said i'm gonna watch the magic happen i'm just sort of thinking like why like i mean i mean i get why for the angle later but like in his like in storyline terms like what was he hoping to accomplish well it's weird because the like wasn't the last show his thing was i know jim Cornette's gonna talk tonight so i'm gonna sit in the corner of the ring until he comes out and watch his promo so it's like adam pierce's gimmick here the guy who just likes to watch things like he just really wants to sit up close, Matt. Yeah, he's I a guess big so. Fan. He's that, a big. That's his gimmick. He's a big. He's a big fan of Ring of Honor. That's it. Yep. Um, do you have any other thoughts about that opening segment? Other than that, I mean, um, I don't know no, not, re- no, not really. No. Yeah. We then get a new top five rankings video, and it's interesting that number five is low key. So even though presumably Ring of Honor, um, you know, filmed this after they were pretty sure probably Loki wasn't coming back. They still had a number five in the rankings, Jimmy Rave, number four, Alex Shelley, number three, Christopher Daniels, number two, and Roderick Strong, number one. So. And Daniels doesn't get any sort of title shot for a long time after this. So I don't know why he's put in that top five. I mean, it seems arbitrary, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. He's number two. And it's not like he's getting title shots. One, three, and four get shot soon, but yeah, two and five. I mean, five gets nothing. Yeah, I guess the reason Loki's on there is because in kayfabe terms, he has not been banned from Ring of Honor yet. Um, we return backstage where Prince Nana is talking to Jimmy Rave. Nana says you'd think he'd be depressed that his boy Alex Shelley's flight was canceled, but he has a huge surprise for Brian Danielson. 
Rave wants to use his title shot tonight, then, since Alex Shelley isn't here to use his. But Nan tells him to wait for the fourth anniversary show like they had originally planned. Before the next match, Julius Smokes and Grim Reefer are in the ring, and Smokes grabs the mic, saying like how Cameron hates Jay-Z and Tupac hated Biggie Smalls. They have beef with Colt Cabana. Smokes says homicide isn't 100%, but they have Grim Reefer here, so Colt Cabana needs to come out here and fight. Colt Cabana theme starts to play. Not not the rap song that they debuted a few shows earlier, but just regular Copa Cabana. Yeah, and then it switches to just the first few opening notes of Miseria Cantare, and out comes CM Punk. The crowd, it's a weird reaction where the pop isn't very big at first, and then it's like as the crowd realizes it's him, like wearing like a, like a beanie and street clothes, they start cheering, and it gets louder into a pretty big pop. For they, they, they chant, fuck the refund, which is yeah. good. But I, I mean, yeah, it never becomes like a huge pop like you would imagine it would be. And, you know, I think I, I have my thoughts as to why, um, but I don't know if you want me to save that. We can save it or, or not. I'm, um, there are probably other opportunities to talk about, but yeah. Um, so anyway, Punk makes his way to the ring, and like you just said, the fans chant, fuck the refund. Smokes calls Punk a fake-ass Barry Windham. Which that, yeah, is- that that one is a head-scratcher. <laughs> uh, you know, Cole Cabana sat um, crisscross applesauce thinking about a lot of things. I feel like I need to sit and, and try and ponder for like 15 minutes how CM Punk resembles Barry Windham. But... Um, <laughs> They both have long hair. (laughs) (laughs) Punk says he has, I mean, um, Smoke says he has no love for um, Punk, and he tells him to get Colt Cabana out here. Punk snatches the mic from Smokes and says right now the mic belongs to him. Smokes tries to grab it back, but Punk keeps, like, teasing him with it and then pulling it away like he's a little kid. Um, Punk says he has no love for Julius Smokes. He has no love for Grim Reefer, and he laughs as he says Grim Reefer's name like he can't believe that he's saying the name Grim Reefer. Um, he has no love for Homicide and zero love for anyone that wants to roll with those people, the, the Rottweilers, and call themselves Rottweilers. Punk says he has love for Colt Cabana, which is a line that you uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, Trevor, you don't have the guts. Like, like if you don't do this, you'll get in trouble if you clip that. And I was like, Matt, even I... I'm not that stupid. I'm not that much of a glutton for punishment. I am not going to quote that. But if you want to get weird feelings, yeah. you can watch a clip in 2022 if you find the show of CM Punk saying he has love for Colt Cabana. A tear uh, rolls down my cheek. Aw. But uh, Punk says wherever he goes, he doesn't seem to make a lot of friends. Apparently he's cocky. He tried the other week to rub those damn tattoos off and it just didn't work. And apparently reading the torch mat – um. This was a story that just came up like in the torture week before that people didn't like Punk's tattoos. So, you know, Punk was pretty plugged into what people thought of him. I know that as well as anybody. And, yeah, as, as he still is, I think. Yes. But, 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 but again, this is a reminder. Like, Punk was very cognizant on this show, what we were, I was alluding to earlier, that, like, he was aware even at this point that WWE, there was a lot of enemies he had there. But Punk continues. At this point, Anna Pierce attacks Punk from behind. He had been sitting at ringside, you know, watching the show. Beats Punk down, tears off his street clothes, revealing that Punk has dyed green hair at this point. And green pants. It's like it's not even St. Patrick's Day, but he is ready for it. The most hideous green track pants you've ever – Punk did not dress up for this for this show until he got into his wrestling gear at the end of the night. Um, Pierce keeps attacking until Colt Cabana runs in chases them off. Prince Nana comes out, comes out laughing, saying, that's what you get. Nana and Pierce leave together with Pierce shouting opportunity as Colt checks on Punk. A fan screams, don't fuck with Stephanie McMahon. And then I think later. Wow, it's an an, an evergreen comment um, (laughs) by that fan. (laughs) 
And then another fan, I think, does later yell, fuck Stephanie McMahon, or may yell before. So fans with conflicting opinions on what Punk should do with Stephanie McMahon. Um, Punk gets up and grabs the mic, and he tells Colt that he loves him, which I love this because, Matt, you very rarely get this reaction from a crowd, but I always love when you do. When he says, I love Colt, like, the crowd goes, aww. (laughs) You rarely get an aww from a wrestling crowd. Well, imagine the reaction if it happened now. You would get the The biggest awe of all time. That would be a Randy Savage Elizabeth for a new generation. Like, seriously, in a way, like, you could cut, like, a heartfelt I'm sorry promo, and I guarantee you'd get some tears in the crowd. Yes. But. From me. (laughs) Punk says he came to try and talk sense into Colt and the uh, Rottweilers. He says Colt has changed. Punk was in Chicago for a week recently, and Colt didn't return his calls. Colt's mom is calling Punk, wondering what's wrong with her son. Punk tells Colt this feud with Homicide has to stop. He wants the old Colt Cabana back. He knows he used to tell Colt to be serious, but now he wants the old Colt back. A serious Colt Cabana takes the mic, and he says, this is his business now. This is his promotion now. He doesn't need Punk giving him advice that came from a higher power somewhere else, which is a really weird quote. Like, is that supposed to reference that, like, Punk's talking about from WWE's I like I don't think WWE really cares about Colt Gamana, but either way Colt says he is t- taking smokes challenge of grim reefer. If he can't get homicide, he's going to beat the shit out of him. Colt says his father is not his father figure anymore. And he doesn't need punk as his father figure either. Punk can do something else, which I was like, that's a weird con to slip in about your dad. Like, did Colt have a temporary falling out with his real dad? I don't know, but either way, Colt says he knows Punk has good intentions, but Punk needs to stay out of his business. Punk says if anyone else apart from Anana has a problem with him, like any good worker, Punk always brings his gear with him in his trunk, and if someone has a problem with him, he'll fight them tonight. Punk leaves, Reefer attacks Punk from behind, the match is on. This was, I thought, a good segment because I felt like Punk really referenced their history in a way that really sold how much cult has changed and that was interesting that like punk you know is very you know a punky type person he's very got chip on his shoulder very rarely as we'll see later one to leave like a negative comment towards him unanswered but it's funny how like in this promo cult basically like very harshly gives punk the shutdown and punk just kind of submissively takes it and just leaves like okay like well i actually yeah I actually thought this was very good booking, like, honestly, in the sense of, like, what would it be logical for Punk to do when he comes back is help his friend, but that's not what he was going to be doing on this night, so it was good that they figured out a way to write him out of that angle, like, uh, yeah. Cabana was just like, no, like, stay out of this, like, which in some ways, like, you know, it's, it's it makes sense, on the, in, other, in other ways you'd think, like, really, like, Cabana would be like, thank you, like, you know, like, I need some backup now, like, you know, some people are trying to kill me, you know, um, but um, I think they, you know, the fact, like you said, like, Gabe pays a lot of attention to detail, and I think it would have been, like, it would have left a lot in the air if they didn't do this angle, so I'm glad that they had Punk involved in this, and then wrote him out in a, at least somewhat logical way. Yeah, and it's funny, because it's a full circle moment, because like one of the things that they tried to start that little bit of a punk cult feud when punk, when punk was leaving that they never really went through on, even though they had a wrestling match was the idea that like, remember there was that one show where cult cut that really screamy, angry promo about punk. How like punk isn't helping him. Like I asked you one time to help me with this feud I have with, I think it was Nigel at the time or something. And you're not yep. helping me. And now we've gone full circle where punk is like, I'll help you. I want to help you. And cult is like, I don't want it from you. you yeah. Know? That's a good call. Yeah, that's a good, really and a good call back. Kind of but anyway, about Punk's pop, I mean, 
you know, now it seems crazy to think that CM Punk would show up and the crowd wouldn't react like, oh my god, CM Punk is back. You know, he's like the ultimate. Mm. Um, but like, at this point, CM Punk was no bigger of a national star than he was the day that he left ROH, right? Like, yeah. he was in OVW, and most people didn't see OVW. And I know he was having good matches with Brent Albright and stuff, but like, he had not a debuted on WWE TV, not even to be one of John Cena's gangsters in the WrestleMania 22 entrance. That wasn't going to be for another month or two later. So, like, it was just the same CM Punk that left. So it's like when Gabe's promising some big, huge, amazing thing, it's like, People are probably like, yeah, but it should be bigger than just another ROH guy. And that's really – I mean CM Punk, you know, I think was great for these ROH fans, but he still was an ROH guy. He wasn't anything bigger than that, I think, to most of the ROH fans at this point. Um, and, and, and the other thing is I do think this was a not great crowd. <laughs> like I think those – Long Island had been given that reputation from very early on as being a shitty crowd for ROH, but I don't think it came across on the first three DVDs. I do think it comes across a little bit on this DVD, especially especially for the non-wrestling segments. I think they mostly get into the matches, but when it comes to the angles, they don't really have these strong reactions. I did not think the crowd was as bad as those comments we read earlier suggested. No, no, not as not that bad, but but worse than normal. But it's also understandable. It's a show that got shuffled around a lot. The card was up in the air. A lot of the stuff coming here isn't even announced. They're like, you know, they're probably maybe in some stress about, oh, there's a goddamn snowstorm starting, you know. And CM Punk would have gotten a bigger pop on a lot of other shows is all I'm yeah. saying. Well, well, no, I, th- I think you made a great point that all that stuff you said, like, that's absolutely true. People that, like, watch the show without context, I think you you absolutely need to remember all that context Matt just gave. And, and I also just like to put a finer point on it. Punk had been gone from Ring of Honor for six months. Like, that's not that very – that's not long, you know. And I have, like, a comparison for that later. But I think if Punk had come back even two or three years later, even if he hadn't done much in WWE at that point – it would have been a huge reaction. But when you see someone and you've only missed them for six months, it's it's not quite the same in wrestling. And that DVD probably only came out like three or four months before this. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that too. Like, like if you've just been following on the DVDs, you really haven't probably missed Punk that long. And, and it's funny because uh, later on during the main event, Gabe was advertising that Punk still had FIP matches still yet to come out on DVD. So I'm just like, <laughs> damn, those things really were delayed. Oh, my God. So this isn't even like the final CM Punk gave Sapolsky promotion match that like is yet to be released at this point, even though yeah. it's the last one he wrestles. But um, Matt, we get to a point. I, I love this. You know, I'm a huge fan of the uh, of Wade Keller. I love the of uh, the way his mind works. Sometimes his weird Ring of Honor comments. Matt, we have one for this show. They reviewed unscripted two on the torch. I don't know why. Uh, he, I, I believe Wade gave this like a 3 or 3.5 out of 10. But this was a comment he made. I love this comment. This is classic Wade Keller overthinking. Wade writes, as much as CM Punk was a big surprise for the Long Island show and could help sell some extra DVDs, it does carry a risk. What if fans begin to wonder how friendly Game Sapolsky and Ring of Honor are with Vince McMahon? Ring of Honor is hardly built on the anti no Ring of Honor is hardly built on the anti WWE vitriol that ECW was, but Ring of Honor's independence is as an important part of is an important part of its image. Getting to use a former star who's now under WWE contract for a night on short notice gives the impression that Ring of Honor and WWE are cozy. Like Wade, calm, calm down. 
No. Yeah, I mean, listen, ECW fans didn't abandon them for being cozy with WWE. I don't think ROH fans are going to. And plus, it's almost like they're walking through a forbidden door. <laughs> there is a very real chance that Vince McMahon does not know what Ring of Honor yet is at this point. Like, I'm sure the people on yeah. the level under him probably did. Like, he's probably heard the name in passing, but that's about it. Yeah. But the idea that Vince McMahon and Gabe Sapolsky are like having fireside chats and, you know, we just got to the story. You know, Gabe Sapolsky and CM Punk got together for the show because Punk went out of his way to contact Gabe and Ring of Honor, not the other way around. And then they talked to Tommy Dreamer, you know. Right. And, and, and but, but even just the idea that fans would care, like, you know, whether Vince yeah. knew or not, like, like, again, like they wouldn't. Yeah. Let's just say again, when you read the stories that all come out after the show about basically how much shit and risk Punk was taking from WWE to do this show. Like, it was it was anything but a cozy relationship. It, it was like him putting himself out there there to do this show. But, right. Um, that brings us to our first real match of the show. Colt Cabana defeats Grim Reefer, scored to the ring by Julie Smokes, in 8 minutes, 16 seconds after he hit a lariat. Um, Matt, what do you think about this? This this really did feel like another match that was more about selling Colt's character than a match, but it did get a not insignificant amount of time. Yeah, I'd say it was more of a real match than I expected when I saw it. I mean, my main reaction, honestly, I was just happy that they finally gave Grim Reefer his name back. Because, you know, in every other appearance, he's like, that's one of Homicide's thugs. Right. You know what's uh, weird is I would feel bad for Grim Reefer. Gabe says on commentary that Grim Reefer is making his in-ring debut for Ring of Honor. He's actually had worked Matt for Ring of Honor twice in 2003. One was a dark match. One was actually on a main card in a scramble. Yeah. Gabe says it's and again. Gabe usually has a great eye for detail, so I think that should show you how like little of an impact Grim Reefer had on him. Where here's a guy who's appeared on a ton of shows, actually wrestled on two of them. And he's like, this is his in-ring debut. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, as far as the match, like I said, I, it, it wasn't great or anything. Like, but I, you know, I appreciated that Cabana tried to get over his new attitude, like, and that was entertaining. But here's the thing: like, he looked really angry when he was beating on Reefer, but he didn't destroy him or anything. Like, he didn't beat him too badly. You know, like at one point he pulls out a table, and I'm like, oh, that's Chekhov's table. It's going to be used later in the match, but then it wasn't. Like they, they, they didn't even they didn't even use it, which is a, a very rare breaking of a rule. And and after the match, he looks into the camera and he goes, "Look at him, homicide!" And I'm just like, he doesn't look that bad. He looks like he just lost a match, like he lost to <laughs> lost to a lariat. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you know, he 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 cranks Reefer's neck, he tears at his face, he punches him, but he, his punches don't look particularly vicious. At one point, he does try to pull Reefer's tongue, which is a reference to homicide trying to cut out Cabana's tongue a few shows ago. But like, you know, again, like it's not, you know, it's not so, it's not so vicious. So I think Cabana is still trying to learn how to be like extra vicious. Like he's got the face down, but the work isn't quite different enough um, to really put it over. But it's not bad. You know, it's, it's all right. Um, And, you know, it does, it is different than what we usually see from Cole Cabana. He's completely serious and intense. So there is that. But yeah, that, that. That's pretty much it. Like it's, it was fine. It was okay. Yeah, I agree. This was decent. I, I maybe like it's like you know it was a little bit above average. Uh, like I, I mostly agree with you. Maybe I'm a little bit softer on. I, I thought he did, Colt did a really good job of selling the emotion. I like that he did like what you said. He referenced the uh, the homicide tongue attack by going after Griefer's tongue. I am um, Griefer. That'd be a good name. But um, that's what I, happens to him. That's what he. That's his alter ego when he gets sad. <laughs> 
that's basically my gimmick, the griefer. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm the little known sidekick of the juicer, the griefer. But uh, it, <laughs> I just re- remembered the juicer's history. Anyway, um, yeah, Trevor, watch it. Yeah, I, I am no way associated with Art Bar. Nor now, nor ever. <laughs> not now. Anyway, um, I, I felt like Colt did a really good job of being of, of being like the emotional side, like you said. Uh, he at times he was selling almost like he was going crazy because at some points he was actually calling Reefer he was calling Reefer homicide and screaming at him. But I agree about the wrestling part where. Colt just didn't have the the moves that you would think for a guy that's going crazy. Like, he still is throwing the fine butt-butt. And I feel like in no match where a human being has murderous intent should you probably ever throw a flying butt-butt, even if it is. Unless you tape thumbtacks to to your butt. Exactly. (laughs) Like, like that's just – that doesn't happen in a like a blood fight, you know. You never think I'm going to throw my ass in your face. But any any prospective wrestlers, just remember, you can tape thumbtacks to your butt and throw a vicious butt butt. <laughs> One day we'll see it, and it'll all be thanks to me. Ha <laughs> <laughs> like ha. But um, I, I do think this is also one of those matches too, where Colt dominates the match. But it's one of those things where it's like you matches you see occasionally where you're like. I can't give you much offense, buddy. I'm sorry, but like every move you do, how about you just do a really big one? Because like Reefer doesn't do a ton of offense here, but he does like a big flip dive to the floor. He does Jimmy Raves from Dust Till Dawn, like tilt a whirl into the cross face, and he does a top rope DDT. So it's like those are probably three of the very like a handful of moves he only gets to hit in eight minutes, but like those are three pretty big moves to hit. And, you know, so. I feel like Grim Reefer didn't do anything wrong in this match. Like, I don't know if you go away, you come away from this match going, wow, I really want to see him again. But I do kind of feel sorry for him for all the shows he's worked that hasn't gotten mentioned. And I feel like he did perfectly fine here. So after the match, we get our next match. Uh, Ricky Reyes defeats Kid Mikazi via submission in two minutes, 17 seconds, when he made him tap out to the Dragon Sleeper. This was another Ricky Reyes squash like he's been getting lately. I think this is one of the first times we've heard a few fans of the crowd chant 30 seconds, which would be kind of a thing for Reyes about, you know, how short his matches are. Actually goes over four times that amount. I would say by the standards of a Ricky Reyes squash, Mikazi was fairly protected, which is still not at all, but, like, he got to hit a bunch of his offense, Reyes, he got to kick out of a spiral power bomb from Reyes, and he even got hit by a baseball bat with Julius Smokes to give him a little bit of cover. You know, decent Ricky Reyes squash. I think it is fun need to note, Matt, that, you know, Gabe's whole thing was, you know, if you're not satisfied by the third match of the show, you can get a full refund. This was the third match on the show, and you had seen basically two <laughs> Yeah. Um, like, basically, yeah. what he was really saying is... The second match. It was the second match that he wanted to them to wait for, yeah. Yeah. Um, unless they show this out of order, that's the only other thing I could think of. Um, like, cause, but Smokes was very sweaty here, so I do think this came right after the last match. Um, I gotta say though, I'm like just really confused about the Reyes thing now. Like, I got what was going on with the students. Like, it was either building up to Davy Andrews beating him, or just building up to that Aries thing that ended up happening. But now it's like, why are they giving Ricky Reyes squashes against up and comers? Like, I don't. What are they? What are they trying to build to? It doesn't make any sense. Um, that said, like it, it was quick, but it wasn't a so it wasn't a squash in a sense that like Mikazi got some offense in, yeah. and, and and Mikazi kicked out after a after a spinning power bomb and a shot to the head with Julius Smokes' bat. Like he comes back with a big moves after that. 
very confusing to me what this was supposed to be. Um, I almost am like, hey, you know, if you're missing so many guys, maybe give Kid Mikazi a chance to look good. Like, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, whatever. It wasn't. It's not that important in the grand scheme I, I of things. Kid but Kid Mikazi has looked good in the matches we've seen from him, and yeah, he's not long for this world. I think he's gone in a show or two more, and he, like Jason Blade sticks around longer than Mikazi. But I thought Mikazi's looked pretty decent. So, like, I just your yeah. standard flippy dude. I mean, granted, Ring of Honor was giving a lot of those kind of guys shots at this point, but. He did not look out of place with them. No, he didn't. Um, but I, I don't really enjoy these Ricky Reyes squashes, and I don't really – I still don't know what the point of them was. Like, they're not um, – I enjoy them, but they're not, like, amazing parts of the show. But I will say this. If I have a choice between seeing, like, a 10-minute Ricky Reyes match or a 2-minute Ricky Reyes match, I will pick the 2-minute Ricky Reyes match, you know, so – I mean, maybe. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't really know how good this could have been if they actually tried to work a more serious match. But I get what you're saying. Like, you want to get on with it and get to people that you are more interested in. We will get on to the Ring of Honor pure title match. Previously, I don't think this was booked originally. Maybe it was. I don't think it was. Nigel McGuinness successfully defended the title, defeating Austin Aries via submission in 18 minutes, 54 seconds, when he made him tap out to an arm submission. I wasn't sure if it was that arm submission, the the name of... Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it was that arm submission. A various arm submission. Um, Matt, what do you think of this match? I I will just tip off my hand. First off, I will say this was my favorite match match on the entire show. Oh yeah, I mean, I think pretty easily it was, it was the best match in the show. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because Gabe mentions early that Nigel is trying to work more impact moves rather than just the finesse like British stuff. And we haven't really seen that too much yet, but he's like setting the table. Cause I do think this is a match where a, a switch flips and we go from like the old Nigel to the new Nigel. He's not fully like in Lariat Nigel mode, but he does hit more impact stuff here and he does hit more Lariats here than he had in previous matches. And he hits him in more impactful points in the match. And more than that, he's just, he's more serious in general. Like, there's not, there's none of that, like, scamp that we usually see in Nigel. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's usually sort of, like, a little bit of like, mischievous, I guess. He's not playful at all here. Yeah, no, he is just, like, totally serious. Like, maybe even too serious. Like, like dude, show a little personality. But, like, but, like, he's, he's, instead he's, like, all business. And the other thing about this match is, this is the first time that really since the Joe match in Buffalo that Nigel has defended against a big established ROH star. You know, his matches with Claudio, like Claudio's a total newcomer, right, at this point. But mm-hmm. Nigel hasn't had any, like, big title defenses in a while. This is his first one. And he, he rises to the occasion, I think. And Aries really works hard, too. You know, there's a couple of, like, you know, miscommunication spots early. The other thing is, Aries is wearing pinkish red trunks, and you don't, I don't think he wears it any other time during this era. And I'm wondering if this was because, like, he just had his TNA gear with him or, or what. But, like, also, honestly, I'll just say I don't think they look that good on him. So I think he made the right call <laughs> not wearing them regularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, like, you know, they, they do work, you know, some mat stuff early. But even early on, when not when Aries does his headstand drop kick out of the head scissors, Nigel, like, blocks it with his arms and, like, sticks his middle finger up at Aries. Like, no smirk. He's just intense. Like, he gets a few wacky submissions in, but, like, not, like, the real over-the-top stuff. Um, you know, they, they do work the mat for a while. Um, you know, Nigel starts working over Aries' arm, which, you know, does lead to the finish, which I like. Um, and, you know, the, the Aries starts getting more impactful, too. He does some big kicks, things like that. Um, 
he uh, he did he does the frog splash again, which I guess has become part of his arsenal. But the first time he did it was for that Eddie tribute show, right? And now it's yeah. kind of become much more of his arsenal. There's a spot where Ares charges at Nigel in the corner, but Nigel backdrops him, causing him to land straddling on the top rope. And then that's when Nigel debuts his the lariat that he does off the middle rope to the guy who's straddling the top rope. And I thought that was a really cool, organic way to get into that spot. And the crowd reacts pretty big to it, at least by the standards of this crowd, because I really don't think they react as loudly as other crowds would have, but mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Um, the other move that I noticed that I don't remember seeing in other matches before, but I know he'll do a lot after this, you know, when he does the headstand, when Ares charges with him, he kind of drops out of the headstand, gets Ares in almost like a, an inverted DDT position, and then does a hard kick to Ares' back and then like a big elbow coming down to get him to the ground. And that becomes a signature move for Nigel. But that's like an early like version of that. Like, And it's another impact move. Um, and, you know, N- uh, Ares uses what would be his third rope break after the Tower of London. And then Ares does this like weird reverse chancery submission. And then Nigel uses his rope break. Uh, Ares goes back up to the top rope and Nigel pops up, hits a second Tower of London, and this time Ares actually kicks out, which really got me. I thought Ares was going to lose to that one because he was out of rope breaks, but instead he kicked out. Um, Ares got a, a small package for a uh, a really good surprise near fall. Um, and then Ares hits a brain buster. Nigel gets his foot on the bottom rope, uses his last rope break. Um, then Ares goes for the 450 and once again, Nigel pops up, gets a submission in the ropes. Ares knocks him off, hits the 450, and he hits the 450. Ares, he takes a split second to cover, and Nigel kicks out of the 450, which is so rare. I'm not sure if I can even think of someone else doing it. Like, I can't, I don't have a specific memory of someone else literally kicking out of Ares' 450. Do you? My memory is always worse than yours, but definitely, like, I will say a theme of this match is. They went way bigger here than you would expect for this spot on the card. Yeah. Like, to me, like, like this is – I'll just say, like, this is a rare time we've seen in this era of Ring of Honor where a lot of times we'll see really two really good wrestlers work in the mid-card and we'll go, that was good, but that doesn't feel like the match they would have in the main event. Like, I'm going to ask you – to me, I think if they, uh, they you would ask these two guys on this night to re- work the main event, I think this is basically the match they would have worked. Um. I think there maybe would have been like one or two more big spots, maybe like a big spot on the outside or something, you know, like a fall through the tip, you know, something like that just to make it slightly bigger. But yeah, no, especially the, the last sequence, definitely. I yeah. mean, kicking out of the 450 doesn't get much bigger than that. And then, you know, and then Nigel immediately grabs that shoulder submission and Aries is in the ropes, but it doesn't count. So he taps out like, yeah, Aries, you know, worked his ass off on this night and – I do think this was a moment where Nigel took a giant leap toward becoming the version of himself that becomes the main event star. He's not all the way there yet, but he took a big leap. I thought this was a low great match, you know, like three and three quarters, four stars, like a, a, a memorably good match because it's like it's a new, a new side of Nigel, and I think he does a good job. Yeah, uh, you. this is one of those matches where – you could not be more in agreement with me. And right down to, I was, I was saying in my notes, I have it written. It's right on the border of three and three quarter and four stars that we are exactly the same there. Um, you, you did a great job of describing like how different 
like this is a real turning point for Nigel and Gabe, you know, calls it out like you mentioned on the commentary. And, you know, it, it's something that happened after I think we we're at the point where Nigel had gone on at least one tour of Noah at this point. And I think that's really what starts to influence him and change him a bit. And in a way, I think you were kind of hinting at this with your comments. Like I do kind of miss like, I like the silly playful style of Nigel and we're starting to lose some of that. And I understand why he's transitioning to more serious, but part of me is like, oh, I do like some of that stuff quite a bit. I feel like he still does hear some of more of the wacky British spots, but only like his most popular signature ones that like he can't get rid of. Like, you know, he's still going to do the headstand. He's still going to maybe do the walk through the legs, but most of the stuff now that's just like on the fly is, is going to get cut away. I feel like we're, we've reached the point where it's going to be much more about like you were calling him Lariat Nigel, you know, hard hitting Nigel, you know, variations on the Lariat Nigel, but this is a really good match. This is right on that board of great. And like I just said, um, it's because these guys usually, you know, usually we're seeing on the undercards, the guys hold back. And a lot of times when guys wrestle each other for the first time, we, I've heard wrestlers talk about like, you always save something for a second match or re, re, your rematch because there will always be future rematches. This didn't feel like these guys were saving anything, you know, because you have Aries kick, you have both guys kicking out of each other's finishers. You have Aries kicking out of the, uh, Tower of London, not once, but twice. You have uh, Nigel kicking out of the 450, like you said, very rarely happens. And one thing I really liked about this match, too, was the way they used rope breaks here was five of the six rope breaks were just guys grabbing the ropes to break up pinfall attempts. That's how they used them. This wasn't really a submission-filled match. There was a little bit of that, but not a ton. And the only rope break that actually is not a, not a just comes from breaking a pin is early in the match um, – Aries has Nigel in some kind of hold and Nigel does the thing where you kind of walk a guy into the corner and then the, the, um, the ref breaks them up and Nigel gets mad. Like it's kind of like a chintzy call that like, Oh, you're counting that as a rope break for me. And it's so minor that I guess Lenny either Lenny letter on commentary either misses it or forgets about it because for the rest of the match, he is one rope break behind on, um, Nigel, which kind of hurts the drama of the match just a little. If you're at home are not keeping track because, when you watch the match, a big part of the drama is is like for for Aries, he he takes the um, Tower of London and he uses a rope break to not be pinned by it. And so later, when he takes another Tower of London, when um he has used all his rope breaks, a huge part of the drama is he has to kick out. He can't grab the ropes because it will not work, and he does kick out, and that's what makes that such a huge near fall. And later on, when Aries hits that four fifty, you know Nigel is somewhat close to the ropes; he could reach out and grab them, but he's out of rope break. So he has to kick out, which adds to the drama. But unfortunately, Lenny is still going, you know, is just still talking up as if Nigel has one rope break left, but he doesn't, he, he has zero rope breaks left. So, and then the end could feel a little bit abrupt because it's basically Nigel kicks out of the four fifty and then applies the arm submission. Aries is in the ropes, but it doesn't matter. And he, and he gets the win, but you could also sell it as Nigel was so desperate. This was like his last dish chance to win the match. Either way, I thought this was a great match. I or close to it. I I know it was. I agree. Like you, there was a little bit of sloppiness early. Um, there was even a moment where Nigel throws some really weak looking cross faces to uh, Aries' face, and I would describe them as if you watch them, 
there is if someone told me I had to cross face you, if we had to if we were forced to do a fake fight, man, I would never want to hurt you. Thank like, you. It, it would be the kind of ginger, very scared of hurting you cross faces. You wouldn't you like, wouldn't you wouldn't Adam Pierce me. Yeah, exactly. And um, I like that Gabe, who usually tries to cover stuff, even Gabe says he's not quite getting all of them. <laughs> Gabe trying to be nice. And one other cool spot I want to mention. I don't see this very often. It was really cool. Um, Ares has um, Nigel in a waist lock behind Nigel. And Nigel runs in the court and basically like ducks down. And the momentum causes Ares to like fly through the air and hit the lowest turnbuckle. Like, it was just a really cool little moment I liked, and probably easier for Aries to do that because he's shorter than other guys, not to be mean or anything. Just, like, to see a guy, like, hit like hit the first turnbuckle with their body that way was really neat. So, anyway, after the match, Nigel and Aries shake hands before Nigel leaves the ring, which leaves Aries alone in the ring. He gets a big thank you Aries chant and does a bow. So, that is another thing on this on this show, which is it felt like, Aries here and probably Roderick later got a little bit of extra appreciation from the crowd because the crowd maybe not during every moment of their matches because apparently Strong was one of the people frustrated about the crowd reaction to his wrestling but like he's getting this extra standing ovation because the fans know he chose Ring of Honor over TNA yes and uh, that brings us to uh, Bobby Cruz introducing the man ranked number one in Ring of Honor's top five rankings, Roderick Strong. Roddy comes to the ring and calls out Brian Danielson, saying he doesn't he knows he doesn't have a match tonight. He wants to know when he's getting his scheduled title shot against Brian. BJ Whitmer inst- comes out instead. Roddy tells him to get out of here, but BJ grabs the mic away and complains about being passed up for spots. He says he's going to now take what he wants, in this case, the number one contendership for Brian Danielson's world title. He challenges Strong to put the title shot on the line against him later tonight. At this point, Danielson comes out, FIP and Ring of Honor belts in tow. Um, Roddy, now, this is the part I thought was weird. Roddy, now getting, Brian Danielson having come out, this is the person he's asking for, he kind of wanted a match with him tonight. Roddy, now staying in the ring with the guy he just called out for a world title shot, instead turns to BJ and says it'd be an honor to put his title shot on the line against Whitmer instead. And I thought, that, you, you're kind of being stupid, Roderick. And, um, so Roderick and BJ shake hands. Brian Danielson then grabs the mic and says he's already beaten Roddy twice. He threatens to slap a heckling fan. Brian then says he, he was thinking of giving Roddy a title shot tonight, but no, fuck him, Brian says. Which again, I thought was weird because Roddy basically already kind of just gave up on that. Like in front of Brian, he said, I'm okay, I'll wrestle Whitmer. Either well, way. you know what? The funniest part was when Brian comes out, um, there's a guy in the crowd in a real thick New York accent and he goes, get Whitmer out of there. <laughs> And then Whitmer does leave after Strong accepts the match. So I guess the guy, so Whitmer was like, all right, you know what? I got to get out of there. You don't mess with Lake Grove. But uh, right. Danielson slaps Roddy. They get into a pull-apart brawl that has to be broken up by refs and students. At this point, Whitmer has vanished. Prince Nana appears. Nana says Danielson forgot he has a world championship match tonight. Nana says as much money as he has, he was unable to get Alex Shelley the flight he needed to work this title shot tonight with Danielson. Nana says he has a surprise of his own, someone he acquired years ago, the second Ring of Honor world champion, Xavier. And yes, Xavier comes out, which means we get the Ring of Honor world title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends, defeating Xavier by disqualification in 12 minutes, 57 seconds, when Jimmy Rave ran in and attacked him. Um, Debacus44, who gave the live report to the Torch, wrote, Xavier came out. I am pretty sure a lot of people didn't even know who he was. 
Some people must have known because when Nana does that mic work, when he mentions the second Ring of Honor champion, you hear some people in the crowd be like, oh, but you could tell like probably, yeah, not everyone knew Xavier. Um, I thought this was a good match, like maybe three and a half stars. It didn't feel like they were going absolutely full tilt, which makes sense. Well, at least Danielson didn't because Danielson had double duty that night, but they weren't slouching it either by any means. They did a little bit of stalling early. They only really started doing big signature moves in the final couple minutes. But man, there were a couple insane dives in the middle of this match. Uh, Danielson does a crossbody over the top rope to the floor, and he catches Xavier really high right in the head. And then later, Xavier does an elbow suicida, like Samoa Joe style, and he's going coming so fast, he flies over Danielson and he hits the barricade hard. And then, not even seeing at those spots, there's a spot later where, um, uh, I think Xavier's throwing chops to Danielson, and Danielson decides to duck his head down at one moment while Xavier's still throwing chops, and Xavier hits Danielson right in the head with, like, his forearm. And I just felt like this was a match where I don't think either guy got concussed. But I wouldn't have been shocked if anyone told me they did, because they really were hitting each other with a few errant shots here or there. Um, the match is nothing special, but it's enjoyable enough. It, it's fun to see Danielson be his modern dick heel character against one of like, the original heels in Ring of Honor history. I like there was a spot where after Xavier hit that elbow suicida, Danielson's big response was to just like get angry and get back in the ring and have like a big slap war, like get pissed that he even got hit with a dive. Um, it almost fell in the end like a good TV match, complete with the very out-of-character Ring of Honor unsatisfying heel run in DQ where Danielson has um, Xavier in the cow mutilation and Rave just runs in in full view of the referee and attacks Danielson. Um, I would say decent stuff, but not close to a necessary viewing. I, I think it's really fun in the sense of if you're a Ring of Honor nerd, history nerd like us, it's fun to know that they're kind of tying up loose ends in the sense that Xavier was a member of the the embassy right before he left you know he is a former world champion gabe does a good point thing where he points out that xavier won his the world title at the first unscripted so he kind of has real history with this show so in that sense i almost like the idea of this match more than i like the match itself even though the match itself wasn't bad yeah, I mostly agree with everything you said. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. I thought Xavier did seem motivated, you know, and also it was short notice. So how, you know, how prepared could he have been? It's probably the biggest match Xavier had had in a long time, you know, against like, you know, how often do you get to wrestle like one of the best wrestlers in the world, right? Yeah. And, you know, he was game for it. Like, you know, and, and it's a different kind of opponent for Danielson. Um, so that was fun. Yeah. It was just, it was just a fun, like you said, TV match. And I have to say this, like, there's a part of me that loves that Danielson didn't get to beat Xavier clean. <laughs> like, there's just something about it that just because like Xavier always got away with you know winning, keeping the title and during his first reign, and it's just like yeah, Danielson shouldn't beat Xavier. You know what's you know what's weird about this too is Xavier I thought looked pretty decent. Like he looked good, and he doesn't get another. He gets one more match in Ring of Honor in 2007, like a random four-way. And at one point on commentary on this show later in the night, when talking about things going on in Ring of Honor, like how crazy the night's been, he's like, "Is it, he says something like, like, is Xavier back in Ring of Honor full-time? Like, he's almost teasing that Xavier's going to be back, and he doesn't get another match. Like, like I, I still don't know why, like, Xavier, ne- like, he was not, he was good enough to have a spot on the undercard. And he was a former world champion that I think was available. It, it's weird. It, certainly he was available on short notice 
to to work a show here, but like it's I, I still don't know the story behind why after Xavier is healed from his shoulder injury or whatever he suffered, he never comes back except for these weird one-offs. But either way, uh, Gabe also said on commentary, the rumor is Alex Shelley would have been here ex- despite the snowstorm, but his ticket was canceled, which is so specific. I wonder if it was true, but I have to assume he would have just chosen TNA like everybody else. But either way, after the match, Jimmy Rave continues to attack Danielson when out comes CM Punk complete again in those ridiculously, incredibly ugly green track pants. You have to see these to believe them. He makes the save and he beats up Jimmy Rave until Adam Pierce, Adam Pierce attacks him. Punk fights back, but loses out to the numbers game with Pierce spine bustering Punk. Nana gloats on the mic as the embassy destroys Punk and Brian. Nana stomps Punk as he shouts, who runs this place now? Rave and Pierce shake hands, and fans throw some toilet paper in the ring. Nana takes a toilet paper roll right in the face, and he bumps huge for it, which, honest to God, draws one of the biggest pops of the night. Um, The heels leave with Danielson and Punk just laid out, left in the ring to slowly recover. They both slowly get to their feet and do the big dramatic stare down, which is hilarious. It's one of my favorite parts of the show, because Punk and Danielson are doing this big dramatic stare down in the ring and the ring is still full of toilet paper and Brian has a bunch of toilet paper wrapped around his neck that he just will not remove. And so they're trying to do this dramatic moment and it's just covered with toilet paper. Um, Punk grabs the mic and asks, what kind of world do we live in where a guy who doesn't even work here anymore can't come to a show and hang out with some friends without getting his ass handed to him? He he kicks a toilet paper roll and he go, asks, what is this stuff? So I love that acknowledgement that like Punk doesn't know what's changed in Ring of Honor since then, even though he's been backstage to some shows. Punk says there are people he misses in the locker room and he misses Ring of Honor. Punk proposes Danielson and Punk versus Raven Pierce t- for tonight. That gets a very average, tepid reaction from the crowd. So Funk, Punk proposes again, but he does like a real ton more emotion when he proposes it. And that gets a better reaction from the crowd. The crowd chants for Danielson to shake Punk's hand. Brian grabs the mic and he asks the fans if they really think he's the kind of guy to give them what they want. He said, ask the fans, should he give them, should he give Punk what he wants? The fans give a reaction. I can't tell if it's positive or negative, but Bryant certainly acts like the fans are telling him not to do the match with Punk. Like again, maybe selling that maybe this crowd wasn't really excited for that proposed tag match. Brian even asked the fans, like, are you confused by the double negatives? Danielson says, which, 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 it wasn't a double negative though, right? Yeah. It wasn't like Are you people saying you don't want me to give CM Punk what he wants? That's that's only one negative in that sentence. I I I, I don't like know this for sure, but did this like it came off to me like Brian thought that match was gonna get like when he was like, Do you want me to do this match with Punk? Like Brian thought that was gonna be like a lot bigger reaction than well, r- right there 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 of all the stuff involving punk, I think they thought was gonna get a much bigger reaction because CM Punk even at one point was like I said, you know, like, just like, you know, that there's the crowd definitely was not reacting that big. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know how you can deny it. Um, Danielson says he doesn't care what the fans or punk wants, but he personally wants to kick the embassy's ass. So you've got it, buddy. They shake hands to a pop. So, yeah, like, I definitely feel like there was a moment in that crowd where, like, they were excited, like, ooh, can we see something from punk? And then you see a punk Brian Danielson stare down. And you're thinking in the crowd, oh, we're definitely going to see a 90-minute draw tonight. And then instead, they announce a very random, not like no offense to any either of the guys on the other team, not that sexy or appealing tag match. Like it, it really did kind of I feel like let the air of the crowd a bit. But I don't know. I mean, CM Punk and Brian Danielson teaming together, 
it seems really exciting now. It does, but like Jimmy Rave is a good opponent, but we've seen a lot of Jimmy Rave and CM Punk, and then Adam Pierce. Like, I, I don't know. It's like no offense to Adam Pierce. I feel like he's actually been working hard in Ring of Honor so far, but that's not a match. I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to see. Like, well, I guess, I guess, I guess it's like it's another expectations thing. Like. I guess if you were walking in here being like, we're going to see one of the greatest matches of all time, then yes, you'd be disappointed by that. But I don't know. I guess, you know, it's maybe I'm so out of the mindset. I don't think that's what people were thinking. Here's the thing I would love to know, like from like Shane Haggard or anyone that worked backstage at Ring of Honor and helped do like DVD fulfillment. I would love to know how well this DVD sold because so much of it was built around the surprise of something huge and it turned out to be punk. And it is a real novelty show. Like there's no other Ring of Honor show quite like this. But on paper, that isn't a match I think that sells DVDs. So I would no, no, yeah, the, ma- the, the DVDs that sell well are the ones that have matches that are supposed to be great. And obviously, so this, you know, this main event wasn't one of those. Yeah. yeah. I'd be interesting to see if this DVD sold just because it was such a weird show. But we cut to a backstage promo that an on-screen graphic informs us was taped at Dissension, the previous Ring of Honor show. Jim Cornette says he has a problem with anger management, which is why he doesn't go out much anymore because everywhere he goes, people want to push him over the edge. Cornette says he always has to tell himself not to grab the guy in the Wendy's drive through by the neck because he was born in Bolivia. It's not his fault. Cornette says the last thing he wants to do as a commissioner is lose control and cut a promo on somebody's ass. But Cornette shows his missing front tooth and he starts ranting about the hardcore wrestlers of CZW. Cornette again reiterates that as long as he's commissioner of Ring of Honor, there will be no hardcore stuff. There'll be no barbed wire bats, flaming light tubes, gerbils up people's poop shoots. That's all things Cornette actually said. Cornette calls CZW a CD backroom peep show for the millionth time already in the short history of this feud. And he also calls them Bolivian Championship Wrestling. What, I want my notes at this y- point. Yeah. What the heck is Cornette's problem with Bolivia? I mean, it's just he just has to throw in some sort of racism into the promos. Like, yeah, again, he comes off as a heel here because of that and the f- sideshow freaks and all that other stuff. Cornette says CZW will stay in the peep shows. There will be none of it in Ring of Honor. He says he doesn't view his broken tooth as a broken tooth. He views it as a black eye that CZW has given to professional wrestling. Cornette asks if CZW wants a war. He quotes Terry Funk and Dusty Rhodes, and then he tells CZW to get ready for shock and awe. Because who wants – in 2006, what does anyone want more than referencing the Iraq War? Because that brings back great memories. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that was still an extremely hot-button issue in 2006. Yeah. Uh, um, um, sorry. Your standard good Cornet Angry Man promo with my usual quibbles about him using a few of the same stock phrases and lines and being a little out of touch about how small CZW was as well as – as well as acting like CZ, I mean, Ray of Honor never did hardcore stuff, which stuff we've already complained about numerous times. And throwing in the uh, the the anti-Bolivian stuff, which is just yeah. gratuitous. Um, yeah, it's well delivered, but it's off-putting to me still. Yeah, but it, we're oddly specific. I don't know what what his belief is with Bolivia, but either way. Um, Four-corner survival match. Jimmy Yang defeated Azrael, Jason Blade, and Jarrell Clark in 13 minutes, 58 seconds, when he pinned Clark after he hit Yang time. Um, Matt, I'll, you know, you'll, you get first shot on this. I will ask you just, though, do you think there, there's a spot in this match where two guys clash heads? I think it's Azrael and Jarrell Clark. Like the, um, the One of them takes a top rope dropkick from Jason Blade from behind, and they basically bang into each other and clang heads. I think those guys both got legit hurt on that because immediately afterwards you see, I think as um, 
you see later on Asriel's mouth is bleeding. And then immediately after that spot, Blade try, uh, um, Drell Clark is really selling on the apron for quite a while. And Jason Blade immediately tries to lift Azrael to his feet like three times. And every time Azrael just outright refuses to get to his feet and Blade eventually just gives up and throws Yang over the rope into the ring and starts wrestling him. So I feel like we watched the match where two guys probably got, if not a concussion, like their bells pretty badly rung. All right, so you actually went first on this because that's literally the only thing I was going to talk about. God, was that was that was that spump? Because like they were doing, you know, Jarrell was looking pretty impressive early, like flipping around and you know doing kicks and like people were the crowd was popping. And then they did that spot where Blade came off the top rope, drop kicking Jarrell Clark's back, sending him headfirst into Azrael. And I was just like, holy shit! The match, like I wouldn't say it fell apart, but like yeah, I think Azrael got concussed at least. Um, Jarrell, maybe, maybe not. Like, but like you could tell, like Blade was trying to pick up Azrael right away a few times, and, and Azrael, yeah, Azrael's like no, and he rolled out of the ring for a while, and eventually he got back in the ring, and like you know he he still did his spots, and you know Clark did too, and Clark still I thought looked pretty good. Like I think Clark in the stuff that he did looked better than I think anyone in the match. Like I mean I guess Yang probably technically looked better the best, but like. I thought the stuff Clark did was pretty cool, but it was it was very hard for me to really pay attention to much of the match because it just seemed like they were winging it after two guys got knocked loopy. Um, yeah, you know, like uh, you know, Clark, you know, later on he hit his standing shooting star press. He hit his mule drop kick, which I thought was a really cool move. Um, you know, landed on his feet after Yang backdropped him. So I don't think he was too bad off. If he was able to do all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Azrael, you know, he did some, you know, well-timed spots too later on. Um, you know, definitely Sinclair at that a certain point just completely forgot who the legal man was. Um, but yeah, I mean, Yang, um, Yang won, you know, he, he, uh, they do, he did a series of reversals with, um, Clark and then did Yang time and got the pin. And it's funny because they cut away like mid sentence with Gabe saying it's two wins in a row for Yang, which I thought was weird. <laughs> like they had enough time left on the DVD to finish that sentence. I don't understand what was going on there. But, um, yeah, I, the, the early, that early bump like took me out of the match. And I do think things were a little bit awkward from then on. Um, I still would have liked to see more of Jarrell Clark. I, I, I really enjoy what he does. Um, but otherwise, I thought the match was just okay. This was okay. Yeah, I agree. This was okay. Um, I felt like this match was strangely devoid of personality, even for like four-way random spot standards. Like it really was just like moves with zero emotion. Um, you know, you saw a fair amount of cool moves here. Particularly, I agree. Gerald Clark, I think, was the clear standout here. He just looked really good in the stuff he did, but. No one looked bad, although Azrael did a couple of his double stomps, and both of them missed by a mile. But, like, I feel bad because he always tried to do the double stomp with the head, but do it in a safe way. But I feel bad criticizing him at all, considering that he probably was not completely mentally in it after getting rocked early on. So just my, that that complaint isn't even valid. Um, the one personality bit we get is there was a cute moment where Azrael, as an illegal man in the match, he randomly comes in the ring and he just gives like a light slap to Jarrell Clark's back and then walks back to the ring apron. And Clark like walks over to Azrael like, that was weird. Like, why did you do that? And then Azrael, once he gets close to him, just tags himself in and starts wrestling. And I thought, oh, that's like a cute little mind game spot. I enjoyed that. But there was some usual spot fest sloppiness, a lot of minor hitches, you know, the outright 
head clank that looked bad. Um, Yang looked more solid than his earliest appearances. I think he's more suited, at least in Ring of Honor, to these matches where he's just expected to hit a few spots and like not and come in and out like tags or four ways or stuff. But I do think there's something to be said where I haven't seen him in Ring of Honor so very much. Like he hasn't wrestled much here yet, and yet I've already kind of feel like I've seen everything there is to see from him. Like. And I, I've seen him do spots here that weren't – he hasn't – I've only seen him do once or twice, but I was already, like, uh, been there, done that. Like, even the out of nowhere, I'm just going to block you as you charge me in the corner. I'm going to hit the Yang time immediately and pin that abrupt finish. Like, we had just seen that from, I think, the last Yang match. And it was just like – I don't know. He's still just not clicking, even though he's not doing terrible now. Um Clark, one cool spot he really did was – he did what Lenny calls a mule kick drop kick, which yeah. is really, like – a drop kick going backwards where it's like he just jumps and like without looking sticks his legs out behind him and he did that to Yang's legs. Like Very, very cool. Yeah, I, I, that's another one of those moves where like someone should rip that off today. Like if, yeah. if, if there's if we have any wrestlers that listen to the show, if you're like an athletic wrestler, it is worth finding a copy of the show like on the Pirate Seas or on eBay. Just lift that move. That, that's a really cool move. Lift that move. No, I, no one that I know. Uh, is, is, I am sure he's done it on other matches, so you probably don't have to get this one. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, to get a longer Jarrell Clark singles match. I'm officially a, a fan of Jarrell Clark here. He's yeah, won I mean, me over on these shows. I, I would say of this crew of guys that they've been trying to book at once, Jason Blade, Kid Mikazi, you know. Dave Fury. Clark. Yeah, yeah. He is clearly so far the most interesting one. Yeah, the one you go wow. He, this guy really can do some really special things in the ring. Um, other notes I will say is uh, I think at one point Lenny accidentally called Asriel Jazriel. <laughs> I could not stop thinking of that for the rest of the match. Would have been a great gimmick. <laughs> I would love a repackaging of Asriel as Jazriel. Like he's just really into Miles Davis. He would but, be. Um, he, would, he would team with the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. <laughs> Um, and then there was one more. You mentioned about the tags losing track. Gabe at one point in commentary talked about how no tags are needed in a four-corner survival. And then later when two guys were back in the ring after everyone did d- dives to the floor, Gabe goes, I don't think these two are the legal men. And I was just like – It's like Melcher with that contradiction. Yeah. Again, it's, it's just with these matches, either – I always say with these Ring of Honor things, it's one of my pet peeves. Either rigidly stick to tags and legal men. Or just ignore it. Like, the middle ground is always the off-putting part. But that takes us to the Ring of Honor world title number one contendership match. Robert Strong defeated BJ Whitmer via pinfall in 20 minutes, 11 seconds with the Gibson driver. Before we get to the, before we get to the match, just real quick. Do you have an issue with um, putting the number one contendership on the line against someone who's not even in the top five? doesn't seem fair. It. I don't have a problem with that as much as... I feel a lot of times, like, I, I, I'm going to ask you back. I, I don't think that seem, that's a bad thing. What I will ask you is, does it does it always – I'm kind of a proponent of this, um, or just a believer of this proponent's not the right word. But um, when wrestlers, like, give up number one, con, number one contendership, like, chances when they don't have to. Like, Roderick did not have to say yes to Whitmer. Like, does that make him look like a strong fighting champion or does that make him look like kind of an idiot? Like, uh, cause uh, people in these kind of situations will often argue like, like should a wrestler ever say yes when they don't have to risk something like this? No, I think, you know, when you're a baby face, you don't say, you don't turn down challenges, you know, I think, I think that's just a general good rule to follow. What do you think? 
Um, I think it really depends on the situation. I think more often than not, sometimes I feel like, no, you shouldn't offer the challenge, but like accept the challenge. But I, I do agree with a baby face. It, it's, it's much more acceptable and sometimes positive because yeah, a baby face is a fighting, you know, they have pride and they're willing to, you know, take chances. But Matt, since I, st- I stole the main story of the last match from you, I'm going to let you go first on the last two matches. So, I guess wow, wow, that that is generous. Amazing, I know, but I, I will say I have heard some strong feelings about this match. I have strong feelings in the opposite direction, so I'm interested in what you think of this match. Strong feelings. Um, I kind of have some Whitmer feelings about this match. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, I do not have strong feelings about this match. I, um, I, It was a long and deliberate match. Like, it sometimes got dull and it was very regimented. Like there was 10 minutes of strong in control, then 10 minutes of Whitmer in control, then a couple minutes of back and forth. And then it was over. Like it, it really like had like, just like very, very like strict, like just like basic segmented matches. And like, I'd say it was the, the negative was like at times it got slow, especially when Whitmer, Whitmer was in control. The positive was that it felt like a struggle. Like it was hard hitting and they were like trying hard. Like, like, I, but it wasn't super, I didn't find it super entertaining. Like it was like, okay, so I guess I'll go through it. Like at the beginning, like BJ was, you know, they were doing basic, you know, feeling out. BJ back strong into the corner, teases punching him and right before a clean break, like he like, he puts his fist up and then walks away. And a guy in the crowd just yells, psych. And I <laughs> thought that was pretty fun. Then there was like there, you know, there. This was like this match and the main event, like both sort of had this like house show feel where they were paying like attention to the crowd. So like, at one point, Strong is like doing a reversal out of an arm ringer, and he does like a flip, and a guy yells "Davy Boy Smith" because that was like a classic Davy Boy Smith spot. And Strong looks at the guy and goes, "That's right." And the guy replies, "Dynamite was better, and you know it." And that actually, like, you could tell Strong is about to laugh before like Whitmer doesn't move to him. Um, <laughs> And so the fans on this night, like, I don't know if you noticed this. There does seem to be a lot of the I'm going to obnoxiously draw attention to myself yeah. thing. The wrestlers did not mostly theme seem to mind, except for one major exception, which <laughs> we keep teasing. Um, so, you know, they start slow, but Strong really dominates early. Like, you know, doing a lot of chops. He hits a big forearm to Whitmer. Um, someone in the crowd keeps talking about John Cena for some reason. I can't tell what he's saying, but I heard the name John Cena like he, multiple times point, in a row. Goes John Cena, and Roderick looks up and 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 he goes, he goes to Roderick. He goes, "You're John Cena." Like like he's supposed to say, like you're the Ring of Honor John Cena. And you can see Roderick like his face crunches up. Like what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction when you just said it. So <laughs> you know they they meander a little bit on the floor, but like Strong hits an Oleo lay kick for some reason on Whitmer. Now I don't think he was challenging joe anytime soon so i I think this was more of a tribute than a taunt um um and gabe at one point he said he says he expected the match to be much more competitive because that's how dominant strong has been because like strong is basically just like playing with bj at this point he does a second ole ole kick um and whitmer finally comes back with a neck breaker on the floor and that's when he takes over he works on strong's neck does a camel clutch um but does not break his back first um and and strong, you know, makes the ropes, and that's when things get, you know, they really slow down. Whitmer is just like methodically working on strong neck. He actually like lays in a chin lock for a certain point, um, 
you know, Strong, whenever, you know, when Strong does try to come back, Whitmer hits an eye poke and a DDT, so he establishes himself, I guess, as the heel here. Um, uh, BJ actually goes for a frog splash attempt and Strong moved, and I guess it's because he had it scouted, because Ares does it now. That's, that's my logic for that. Um, and then, so both guys are down, and this is when Gabe goes into his overhype, because he calls this match a classic encounter. Um, did you think this was a classic encounter, Trevor? I don't want you no, to spoil anything. No. Yeah. So, um, close to 20 minutes in, you know, Strong's done a lot of hard strikes, does, has not done a backbreaker, and he finally hits one and gets a two count, but he favors his neck, and, you know, so he doesn't pin BJ there. Um, BJ hits some low kicks, running knee to the head. They fight over big moves, and BJ hits a power bomb with a folding press, gets a two count off of that. Um, Whitmer goes back up to the top, but Strong hits him with a drop kick when he's up top and superplexes him. Gets a two count on that. Um, BJ rolls through a half Nelson backbreaker attempt, hits a lariat, gets a two count off of that. And the entire time, um, like the, for like half the match, Gabe just keeps going, BJ needs to hit an exploder here. BJ needs to hit an exploder. BJ has to hit that exploder. And I feel like if BJ like heard him, he would be like, all right. Leave me alone. Stop saying that. Because um, he says it so many times. Um, eventually, Strong hits the double knees, the running kick, and then he hits uh, the Tiger Driver, which he yells, Gibson Driver, which I think is the first time he calls it that. Um, so I guess that's a good way to establish the name of a move. You just yell it. Um, and he gets the win off of that. So yeah, so I, I I did not feel strongly about this. I thought there were things about it that were solid. Um, I thought it was not as exciting as it could have been. Probably longer than it needed to be. Um, but no, I did not I did not have strong feelings. I had Whitmer feelings. So I thought this was good, but I was pretty disappointed in it. And I guess where what I'm was alluding to is I don't always look for reviews of the matches we cover. Sometimes I do, depends if I have time or if I'm curious. Uh, but uh, one thing I usually try and do is listen to the honorable mention Ring of Honor podcast if they've done an episode about the show we're about to cover. After I've watched um, the show myself and made my notes and done my formed my own own opinions, and, you know I don't always agree with those guys, and I don't always agree with anybody because you know that's good. I sometimes don't agree with myself. And my policy is I listen to them first so I can just copy their opinions. <laughs> Great, that's why you're the good half of the show. But um, the uh, but like um. You know, rarely like this was a match. These guys just loved it. They called this a hidden gem. They said it was easily the best match on the show by far. And it's always have you ever like do you ever get that thing where some people are so strong about something and they're people you respect or or or, or have just listened to a lot that you start almost doubting yourself. Like I was starting thinking, yeah, definitely. Was I too hard on this? But I really, I mean, I, I mean, you have you when you feel a certain way, I do that. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel the same way about you. You've definitely convinced me sometimes that I've been too hard or missed something. But, like, so I actually look at other reviews of this match and, you know, like, Wade Keller thought this wasn't very good. And, you know, some, but then some people did like it more. So I, I feel like, you know what? I consider BJ Whitmer, like, Ring of Honor's good hand. Like, he doesn't ever usually thrill me, but he's always a hard worker. And his work is always very sound and competent and decent. And, I feel like this is a good hand match. Like these guys worked pretty hard. It felt like the fundamentals were all good, but like you said, I found at times I was, it was kind of dull and my attention was kind of wavering. And for 20 minutes on a semi main event, 
and these are two of the harder hitters in Ring of Honor. I thought these guys could steal the show. You know, they could just go to war. You know, this show kind of needs another match like this, another match like Aries and Nigel, where the people just throw things out. And this felt like the opposite of Aries and Nigel, where that match felt like they weren't holding much back in the way of near falls or anything for like a future match. This match, as you mentioned, you know, Gabe keeps referencing the exploder. BJ never hits an exploder. You know, I mean, Roderick only hits like one or two backbreakers late in the match. Like it felt like they left a lot on the table to have like a better match in the future. Oh, go on. Well, I was say, like, and like the thing that I mentioned about it being regimented, like it was just uncreatively laid out. Like it was just like, uh, it's my turn. Now it's your turn. Now we do the finish. Yeah, I mean, Roderick, like you said, and Gabe mentioned in the commentary, absolutely dominates the first half of this match. Like, just BJ gets very little in the first half, and then almost like he's just on autopilot taking offense, and then. Then, yeah, then BJ finally gets to work on Roderick's neck, and Roddy does a fairly good job of selling it, and then they do build to a little bit bigger stuff. But I also felt like, again, because these two are such ass figures from Ring of Honor, there is some chopping and, and, and brawling a little bit, but I thought these two would have the potential to just really kick each other's ass in a way like – it wasn't the kind of Roderick Strong BJ Whitmer match I wanted to see. It's perfectly competent. It's like decent. It's good, but I don't think this is close to as good as Nigel Aries. And I, quite frankly, I like the main event better than this, which we'll get to. You know, and I just feel like from a match quality standpoint, this show needed one more match like Aries and Nigel, where the guys just said, "This show really needs us to save it from an in-ring point." So let's just like put it all on the line and these guys did not do that not to blame them but we then get another coming soon the return of the briscoe's highlight package another good highlight package we will we will be briscoeless no more starting with the very next show matt it's coming to an end our briscoe drought soon but first we have the main event brian danielson and cm punk defeated adam pierce and jimmy ray in 29 minutes and two seconds almost a half an hour when punk made rave submit to the anaconda vice Matt, we alluded to this multiple times. I mean, we haven't, we won't get yet to the stuff that happens after the match, which we also have alluded to. But even the part we said early on in the show that a very relaxed wrestling match, uh, I would say that's the best way to describe this. I think you would agree. But- yeah, I mean, it's a house show match, right? Like yeah. that—that's just what it is. And I do think it's entertaining in its way. Um, the thing, like the crowd, did annoy me here, and I'll tell you why. Um, they get, you know, a big surprise match with CM Punk, you know, even though, like you said, he wasn't the big international superstar that he is now. He was still an ROH legend, but they are just so much more interested in chanting homophobic things at Jimmy Rave. Yeah. And it got on my nerves. Like there, during the intros, there was a thing where um, they were chanting Jimmy Swallows. And, you know, Jimmy does the thing that he does because he's a pro. He gets mad and he goes, stop, you shut up. You know, and. Adam Pierce, because he's always, you know, yeah. funny. Like he's he he grabs Jimmy around the chest and he goes, "It's okay, it's okay, it's okay that they know." <laughs> and and like you know, like Adam has done that before, like where he like he kind of leans into the homophobic chants and stuff. It's just like, like you know, I know it's 2006. I know that's what they did for Jimmy, but it's like, why is that so exciting for people to do that? Like, and not ignore the fact that, like, oh my God, it's CM Punk right there. It just, it was just irritating to me. I don't know. I mean, they still do chant for Punk when he gets, uh, when he finally tags in. But, you know, like, Pierce, okay, so early on, you know, it's fun because Pierce is a different kind of opponent for Danielson, like, just like Xavier was. But, like, you know, Danielson gets to kind of be a baby face, you know, more than usual. But 
like there are some spots where they're like they clearly have to know this is ridiculous. Like there was a spot early where Danielson and Pierce do a test of strength, and Pierce is like way bigger than Brian Danielson. And Brent Danielson is not, like, presented as, like, short but powerful, right? Like, he's just a, a good wrestler. But Danielson is beating Pierce in the test of strength. Like, he has Pierce down on his knees and he's, like, standing over him and Pierce has to headbutt him in order to escape. And it's like, do you think that was, like, an inside joke right there? Or do you think, like, they were just, like, absentmindedly being like, yeah, I mean, I'm the champion. I'll win the test of strength. I- I'm not sure, but, yeah, this, like, it- it's weird this match had, like, this is the rare match. It felt like these guys, like, I'm not saying this match is bad, but it's one of the rare wrestling matches where there, it is palpable. There's a palpable sense that they're having fun. It's the rare wrestling match where it felt like the wrestlers were having more fun doing it than we would be having watching it. Like, yeah, I mean, like, I guess the amount that you, the amount of joy you get out of this match probably depends on how much joy you get out of seeing wrestlers have fun. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I can get some joy out of that. Um, but yeah, that test of strength thing, I was like, come on, man. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then like when Punk finally comes in, I mean, not finally, it's not too long in, but Danielson like really like milks teasing, tagging in Punk. And like the crowd, the crowd doesn't pop huge for it, but the people, the, the crew in the first row are very excited for Punk to tag in. You can visibly see it, even if you don't hear it. And, you know, and Punk does tag in, he says he wants Jimmy Rave and like Rave hesitates, but then it's like, he does it. And I'm like, oh Yeah. Jimmy Rave, what a brave guy. But then, in, then you know, he does the classic thing where instead of locking up, he avoids the lockup and then immediately tags back out to Pierce. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, very, very classic babyface heel stuff where Punk wants Rave. And so what he does is, and this is actually kind of clever, he takes Pierce's arm, ta- makes it tag Rave, and then brings in Rave and starts beating him up. Which I thought was nice, and then it's kind of yeah. He puts Pierce in an arm ringer, and and like Ray has his back to the ring on the apron, and he like he literally just walks Pierce up by the arm and makes him tag out. Yeah, and and this is, makes it, this begins a sequence that's sort of like with the Strong and Whitmer match, in that Danielson and Punk just like have fun with um with with like beating up the heels like for a little while it's 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 just quarter like it's like low stakes they just they're just dominating um meanwhile during this match and you kind of alluded to it earlier it's kind of weird that gabe knowing that he's the booker asks a bunch of questions on commentary that he knows the answer is no to like he goes like is adam pierce in the embassy now well, well, no, he's not. Is Xavier coming back full time? Well, no, de- definitely not. Like it's it's just weird. Like he's like he's like building up things that he himself knows. The answer is no. That's a strange thing to do, right? Um, yeah. Then th- there's another spot where where Danielson tries to surfboard Pierce, but he's too big. Although this time he doesn't say um, that's he's too fat the way he did with Carino. Um, but then you know they 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 brawl out on the floor. Um, a punk. Um, um, you know, Punk throws, uh, Pierce into the crowd, I mean, into the, into the, uh, guardrail a bunch of times. And every time Pierce gets sent into the guardrail, he just like flings himself in. Like he hits the guardrail hard. Like Punk does it a couple times. Danielson does it a few times. It almost seems like Pierce is just like having a blast. Like it's almost like he's on a slip and slide. He's like, yeah, throw me in again. Like it just seems like, like this is like one of the ways that Pierce is having fun. It's just like, this is like just like flying into the guardrail really hard. Um, and at one point, so finally the heels, they get some momentum and Pierce knees Danielson from the apron and then Rave knocks Danielson 
um, off the apron into Pierce's arms, who drops him on the guardrail, and then Pierce slams Danielson into the guardrail, so the heels take over for a little bit. And then, I don't know why I thought this was so funny. So, like, Pierce is working on Danielson, and Rave is on the apron, and Rave has a water bottle, and he pours water on Danielson, and then Gabe goes, Rave playing mind games with Brian Danielson. And I'm just like, wow, it's very easy to play mind games. You just pour water on somebody. And that's also felt like, wouldn't that be like welcome during a wrestling match? Like refreshing, like, oh, that's going to cool me down. Like, thank you. Yeah. And, but like, even if it's not like to describe it as mind games, I don't know. Why, I don't know why I thought that was so funny. Well, it'd be weird if he was like, Rave is playing fluid games with Brian Danielson. Uh, you know what? You know what? I'm going to agree with you. That would be weird. That would be a weird thing to say. Um, but um, so there, like, there's some fun wrestling stuff too. Like I did not expect that Pierce and and Rave would hit a kind of cool looking doomsday device, but they do. And Danielson takes a really good flip bump off of it. And I guess it's to set up the fact that they go for a second doomsday device and Danielson turns it into a victory roll, then hits two roaring forearms and does the hot tag to punk. Um, and, um, so, so when punk gets in, he backdrops Pierce to the floor, hits a tope onto him. Pierce falls into the front row, then punk backdrops, backdrops Raven to the front row. And then Danielson debuts a move that he would do a lot as champion and after. Where he does a springboard flip dive from the, um, from the top rope into the crowd, into the front row onto Raven Pierce. That's the first time he's done it as ROH champ. And then Gabe mentions that Danielson actually told him it was the first time he had done it since 1999, diving into the crowd like that. So if that's true, that's pretty fun. And he makes it part of his championship repertoire going forward. So that's, I guess, one um, historic thing, and he debuts that move. Um, so then finally, they're back in the ring. Um, it's funny because Punk and Pierce fight, but Pierce has like a green streamer dangling from his wrist tape the entire time they're doing a bunch of moves. Um, uh, Rave uh, uh, eventually suplexes Punk, and Pierce hits the big splash, so... They do LOD's finisher and Power and Glory's finisher just minutes apart. So that's, that's fun. Um, so, um, uh, Rave goes for the greetings from Ghana a bunch of times. Punk reverses into the Anaconda device at one point. And then simultaneously, Danielson gets the catamutilation on Pierce. And while he's like floating over, he almost kicks Punk in the face, which is <laughs> kind of awkward, but Rave makes the ropes. Um, Eventually, they go through a bunch of big moves. Rave hits the running knee, gets two. Punk comes back with a very sloppy Rana, which I was worried almost hurt Punk and Pierce. The way, they that, like it. yeah, the way they both kind of landed on their head, and they're both down. Um, Rave goes for greetings from Ghana again. Danielson hits the missile dropkick to break it up. Then Punk does like I guess what I would call a downward spiral kind of move or like a flatliner. I don't know what like the more generic name is for that move and goes right into the Anaconda device. Um, Danielson knocks Pierce off the apron and Rave finally taps out. I feel like it would have made more sense for the guy who wasn't in the title match in the next show to tap out, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, I, I like you said, it's kind of like the people, the wrestlers are having more fun than the audience, but like I enjoyed watching the wrestlers have fun and there were some fun moves. This was a different kind of match. It wasn't a match to be taken seriously. It wasn't a match that was going to be like traditionally great. But Punk seemed happy to be there. Although the promo afterwards makes me question that. I don't know. But um, 
like, I had a good time watching it. It was long and I wasn't bored. Where It's very easy to be bored in a 30-minute match. So I thought the personalities carried it through. I liked it. It wasn't great, but I liked it. Yeah, this would be my second favorite match of the show. I'd probably give this like a strong three and a half stars. Um, it's, uh, it, it is self-indulgent to say the least. It, it is, uh, you know, this is another show. If you want to see CM Punk, a guy who's known for being grumpy, who, uh, you know, has a chip on his shoulder, he very rarely looks like he's having a blast, although a little more, more often now that he's in AEW, but like, if you want to see a guy that just the entire night, it just looks like he is having fun with a giant goofy grin plastered on his face. I mean, this is the show for you with punk because he just looks like he is having so much fun, but you are absolutely right when this is a total house show match. In fact, like, you know, sometimes I say, oh, you can cut the ha- first half of a match out and you're being a little bit exaggerating. You could literally have cut the first 15 minutes of this match out and missed almost nothing. Like, there are moments in those first few minutes where it's like Danielson and or or Punk will do a spot, and then the appeals will sell a little bit, and then like the faces will just like look out to the crowd and or, like talk to a fan or like interact with them from the ring. Like like it literally almost feels like it's half match, half catch up. Like with with, with the fans, like oh I, I remember you. Like oh that's a pretty good comment. Like just it, it is the most lackadaisical laid back match you you've seen, and to the point where like hard. Like, I even thought that hard flying into the guardrail was done because the person receiving it was having fun doing it. That's how laid back this match was. But, but like you said, like, there are a couple fun spots before it really switches on, but for the most part, it's very skippable, except I did like that combination on, like, surfboard dropkick from Danielson Punk, and I like the, uh, there's a spot where they do stereo kicks to the chest and back on a point, which I liked, but really it is that moment you described where Danielson takes the doomsday device and then he victory rolls counters the second attempted one and makes the hot tag. And from there, it is really one of those things that you sometimes see in wrestling where it's like these guys go, okay, we've had our fun. We're going to, you know, we've been taking it easy. We're going to, we're going to flip, flip the switch and like earn our pay for the night. Cause like the last seven to nine minutes are just all action. You get that crazy Danielson dive. You get all the signature moves that you really recapped. Well, like, it really is just like they were. They decided we're going to play tonight. We're not going to take things too seriously. And then they kind of remembered, well, we got to do something for these people. And to me, that stuff, at the, like the palpable joy from the guys, I really enjoyed it. I did not enjoy it quite as much as you. But then combine that with the fact that they really did like turn it on at the end. It still wasn't a classic, but they really did give you something at the end. I felt like that really boosted this match to a fairly good match. Maybe again, not what you would expect if you were um watching, but I have a few just random notes from things. Um Punk got a welcome home chant, which was nice. Um uh, the Adam Pierce thing you mentioned was really funny. Uh, I, I did you this is a cute thing. When um when Bobby Cruz announces Punk as two hundred and twenty seven pounds, um some of the crowd's like, You're a big boy. No, some of the crowd before that was noticing like how big Punk is, and it was like, You're a big boy, and Punk like has like a friendly like talk with them and then when bobby cruz announces punk is 227 pounds you see like punk rubbing his belly like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, like i've gotten big you know? uh, and punk did if you there's like some closest where punk almost has like a little type of a double chin like he's at definitely at that point wrestlers sometimes get it where yeah they're they're so eager now to bulk up that like he's probably just really calorie loading yeah exactly a lot of a lot of protein 
Yeah, and um, yeah, no, he definitely look. He looks puffier than at any other point in his career. Which I even re- I even remember noticing at the time. And like you know, once he gets on WWE TV, he kind of like levels out again. I think, but like definitely, he was like in the I'm getting bigger for TV phase. What's the phrase Shawn Michael used when he got like puffy for a while, bulky up in the early nineties? The phrase that was like, "I overshot my target." <laughs> like, like, like Punk's overshooting his target just a little bit here. He looks great. Right? He looks fine. Everybody, yeah. no, no one's body shaming anyone. He looked, he looks no. good. He looks good either way. No, no, and, but I would say he look. I, I would say he don't looks good. But I would just say this is probably like the bulkiest Punk is. Definitely, the, definitely, it's the bulkiest that I ever remember him being yeah. during this era. Um. It's something that probably makes Wade Keller cringe. Adam Pierce rubs his dick for an extended period of time this match before shaking on Punk's hand. So the spot and, and we're saying and we're saying that because he made a comment on the last show that he did that. That's why yeah, you're yeah, mentioning Wade yeah, Keller. Yeah, I was going to clarify too, just to be. Yeah, Wade really did not like. He thought it was one of the weirdest things that he had seen in wrestling history that a guy did this spot. But um. I like that he really does it here, and Punk still shakes his hand with like a smirk on his face, and then Punk is like going to shake Rave's hand, and and R- Punk is basically like telling Rave like, you know what just happened? Like you're gonna have to shake my hand now after I did that, and like Punk's got getting like a real kick out of it. Um, Danielson hit the flying headbutt really early, and I guess going back to the one other point I wanted to talk about that we never thought to those comments early on in the newsletters both the the uh, observer and figure four that some of the top wrestlers were angry that they had to work extra hard because the crowd wasn't giving them reactions for anything tonight two of the wrestlers they named were punk and danielson i don't i don't feel that watching this match like i don't feel frustration and i don't feel like like if they were feeling like they had pressure that they had to work extra hard they certainly, for most of this match, were not working extra hard until maybe the final seven or eight minutes. Now, my feeling is if there was any frustration at the crowd, it would have been toward their reaction to like promos and angles and stuff. Their reactions to the matches were mostly fine. It's like they weren't popping for like big moments in the promos, you know, like we're going to have this match. Oh, I'm CM Punk. I'm here. You know, like they weren't popping to the degree you'd expect. But like when you watch the matches, they're mostly fine. Yeah. And, and again, they were interacting so much with the crowd. It seemed like they were having fun with the crowd. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, Gabe almost calls Greens from Ghana the pedigree, and like Lenny interjects and saves him. He's like, the p- p-, and then Lenny just immediately goes over top of him, you know, greetings from Ghana. And then like seconds later, they like tease the spot again, and Gabe just calls it the pedigree. <laughs> and then he gets like mad at himself for doing He's like, oh, well, whatever. And it was just like one of those lovable Gabe. Although. Things. Although I think, you know, I do think it's part of the gimmick that, like, he's doing other people's moves, but he's, like, giving them bullshit names. Yeah. Like, I think, like, it's part of the, like, yeah, come on, that's the pedigree. We all know it's the pedigree. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, finally, you know, you mentioned this was a night with a lot of fan hecklers. We're going to get into one, maybe not hecklers, but people that were trying to make cutesy comments. And some I liked, some I didn't. Matt, this one was a good one. I, this is a, this is a very simple one. I probably this probably tickles me more than most people. For some reason, it just hit me right. Um, you can you have to listen for it, but uh, you know, Nana's walking around outside the ring, and during like a quiet moment, you can hear a fan just yell, "Nana, why the fuck are you wearing jeans?" And I just started laughing, like, oh, "That's a good comment. Like, he's wearing jeans. Like, is the should the prince be wearing jeans? Like, I don't know, but I just love like the fan wasn't even trying to be mean. He was just like, it was like he was really cute. Like, Nana, why the fuck are you wearing jeans? And I was just like, okay, that's a good heckle. That that, that works for me. I enjoy that. Should and, the uh, prince be wearing jeans? Is a good philosophical question, Trevor. <laughs> 
that's like a good modern indie band. Um, <laughs> so after the match, Danielson and Punk embrace as the crowd chants, thank you, Punk. Gabe says, Punk is worthy of joining Samoa Joe and Loki and being classified as Ring of Honor legends. Danielson encourages the crowd, who has started to do a Ring of Honor chant. And then Night Train, the song Punk by Bouncing Souls, the song Punk only used in Ring of Honor for his final pre- his previous final match in Ring of Honor, plays. And basically, we get to see Punk in the ring as the song plays through from start to finish. Uh, you know, Punk does a lot of posing for the crowd. He throws his ring, takes off his ring tape, throws that into the crowd for the fans. He throws, I believe, an elbow pad into the crowd for the fans even. Punk is, ends up singing along to the final part of it. And then... um. At this point, Danielson gets on the mic and he asks the fans, don't you people know there's a storm, snowstorm outside? And the crowd at this point chants, fuck the snow. Seems cold. Seems like it would be very cold to do that. <laughs> Danielson starts laughing at this with that adorable, charming Brian Danielson laugh. Uh, Brian, like, I, what I love about Danielson, especially in this era, is he tries to be like snow snarky and mean. Like, I don't care what you got people say. But whenever he laughs, it's so friendly and genuine. Like when the crowd makes him laugh on something, like it just completely breaks character. Um, Brian points out that there were several wrestlers who weren't able to make it tonight because of the snow. The crowd boos the snow again. Brian puts over Punk as a guy who didn't have to be here, who makes big bucks to wrestle somewhere else. And Brian says tonight, Punk tonight didn't wrestle like a WWE wrestler. Thank God, he actually says. And then he says, Brian at the point catches him something. He starts laughing. and He goes, I don't have to worry about saying that because WWE isn't signing me anytime soon. It's it's true. It's going to be for three and a half years. So he's right. (laughs) Brian says tonight, Punk wrestled like a Ring of Honor wrestler. He says that he and Punk have had their, not a WWE wrestler. He says he and Punk have had their differences in the past, but anytime Punk wants to leave the entertainment business and come back to the wrestling business, Brian will gladly give him a shot at the most prestigious wrestling title in the world. Brian tells Punk, Punk came back to the wrestling business in August 2021 by his own admission. <laughs> but isn't that wild that, like, to watch us knowing, seeing what we've seen in the last year, like, Brian basically saying the verbiage Punk would use in his first AEW promo? It just shows like, you how little WWE has really changed. Like, yeah, even though there's a lot about it that's changed, it really hasn't, you know? And it shows you that, like, those wrestlers knew kind of what they were getting into to some degree yeah. when they first left. It's not like they had, like, like I'm sure they had hopes and dreams and they had some good, great, I mean, Brian still speaks positive of his time in WWE. And I'm sure they both had have some happiness there and got some opportunities and things there, clearly, that they would have never gotten anywhere else in wrestling. But I think if people try and paint these guys as, like, oh, they love WWE and then something hurt their feelings and then they got bitter, like, they were both, I think, cognizant of, like, how WWE is not completely what they wanted from wrestling, like before they even got there. Right. I mean, I think just like all of us were, you know, like we, yeah. you know, we, if you pay enough attention to wrestling, you knew what that was. Um, I, I'm going to say this about Danielson's promo. I'm not, this, what, this might be controversial, but I think by this point that he cuts this promo, when it comes to talking on the mic in front of live crowds that know him, I think Danielson has not only gotten pretty good, I think he's excellent at it already. Like, just like a great promo in this setting. Like, I, I really do. I think, like, he's, I think he's great. Like, not just good, but great. You know what? Uh, this felt like why, why this was so good and what Brian, I think, offered here that a lot of guys in his position here wouldn't is it felt really genuine on a lot of levels. Like, obviously, he's playing up certain parts of the WWE Ring of Honor differences, but like it really did. And I bet you it was like feel like a guy good naturedly, like really trying to make sure everyone knew like you really did us a favor. You know, I respect you. 
you know, I'm yeah, for sure. Back. Like, 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 I think there's a genuine niceness to Brian and a generousness of him, like in this promo that I think a lot of other wrestlers, it would seem more performative. Like, I think that makes it special. This is also the longest form in ring promo. Brian has ever done an ROH at this point. And he's going to get to do it again. Uh, two shows from now at the, at the ECW arena or the new Alhambra arena or whatever it was called at the time. Um, and like that, that then he is more heelish, but like, He's really good at it already. Yeah. Like, like not again. Like, I'm, I'm gonna say, like, not just good, but like, he's great at it. Like, you know, maybe he wouldn't be as good if he had to be in front of crowds that didn't already revere him. You know, but that that's not the crowd he's in front of. So, yeah. I just, I just want to make that point because, like, he still has that rep of that he wasn't that good on the mic during this era. And like, I think in pre-tape promos, he's you know still has a wor- bunch of work to do at this point. But in front of the crowd, he has a command of that microphone. No, I, I think it's really important. It's that's something you and I have always railed against on the show that, like, Brian Danielson's lack of charisma was greatly overstated, even from the beginning. But, like you said, yeah, at this point, whenever he's just going off the fly, he is so comfortable. You yep. know? Um, so, anyway, yeah, Brian says he'll gladly give Punk a, a, a shot, the most prestigious belt in the world, if he ever decides he wants to come back. Brian tells the crowd that instead of saying other people suck, they should be applauding a guy that rules. Danielson passes the mic to Punk and he leaves the ring, gives Punk, you know, the, the all the spotlight now. Punk says he'd love to find out how long he can talk and keep the fans here as they continue to get snowed in, but instead he'll keep it short. The crowd immediately boozes and Punk seems surprised. So he's like, well, fuck it. I'll keep talking for a while then. And then things take a turn. <laughs> So then he goes searching for the one fan that has been loudly shouting sellout at him all night long. And I should note that, yes, I noticed this even before rewatching this thing. Like, if you notice, every time Punk came out, because he was obviously out for, like, three different segments on this night, you could hear one fan loudly yelling sellout, like, the entire night whenever Punk was out there. And so, obviously, kind of a douchey thing to do. Uh, I think the whole idea of a wrestler selling out, like, People are very are childish about that. They don't recognize like the economic realities of wrestling. But I don't. Th- I don't. Th- I don't think you really hear that pretty much at all anymore. Yeah, that kind of was dying out after the ECW days, and and I think like in the early years of Ring of Honor was like the last wisp of it occasionally happened. I think like by the time you got to like the big days of PWG, you got where got, when guys were leaving the WWE, you, you only got "We will miss you" and "No, you sold out a chance" or anything like that. But, um. The fans, so once Punk, you know, acknowledges where the fan, like, asks, you know, where's that fan, the fan then screams sell out again. Punk points out that the fan could have gotten his money back earlier in the show with that um, three-match guarantee, money-back guarantee, and yet he didn't, so he paid to see Punk. Punk calls the fan a big dummy and says the fan didn't have the balls to walk out of the show and demand his parents' hard-earned money back. Punk asks the fan if he had a goat has a goatee or a bullseye for his boyfriend, which is not only a gross line, but a line Punk has used before in Ring of Honor. Um, and I'm going to say he's never going to use that line again. So that's, yeah, that's I, you know, thank goodness for that. Uh, to, yeah, in fairness, I wish I, I'm sure even Punk today would tell you, like, he wouldn't use that line these days. Punk runs around the ring having fun celebrating, like, getting the burn on this fan. Punk points out that the fan is still here after all of that. And the crowd at this point starts getting kind of... A little bit aggressively in a in like an unsettling, binarily unsettling way, they start chanting, get the fuck out at the fan, which a laughing punk encourages. 
Punk says he still has at least five more good buy shows to go through. That's what wrestlers do. They retire multiple times. They say they never come back and then they do. They just to treat big dumb, just to, to like fool big dummies like you. The crowd then starts chanting, na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye at the fan. And Punk joins in with them, ending with, you're an idiot. Punk then goes to ringside and asks the fan what he said, but when he let, when the fan's about to answer in the mic, Punk immediately cuts him off and says he didn't get, doesn't give a shit. The crowd starts laughing loud at this. Punk does a running high five to the entire front row, and then when he gets back to that fan, he teases it and then avoids the fan, and the fan goes, you know, you got me, I'll give you that one. And Punk says he could do this all night. He's snowed in tomorrow, douchebag. Finally, Punk mentions how he wasn't supposed to be here. He made some phone calls to make it happen. There's a lot of people he needs to thank, but he's not going to do it here. He's going to do it over the phone this week to make sure he still has a job. Fat at this point tells Punk they love him. Punk thanks them. Punk says anyone who says they want to now should, that they should now change the name of Punk, the final chapter, his previous Last Ring of Honor show, he Punk notes that people will probably say that now, but Punk points out that he never got to say goodbye to the East Coast fans, so he's getting to do that here. He just says he just wanted to come to, and help out, and it's nice to know he's still welcome and still was needed. Punk says he will always be here if he's needed. It's the closest thing he has to have home. The crowd starts to chant, come back soon, and Punk actually says, you never know. So, Punk making some promises here he won't be cashing in on, at least for 16 years. That was not a promise. Yeah. <laughs> he just he just literally said, you never know. Like, I'm sure what he meant was, hey, I'm probably going to get fired. Well, he did before that say, I'll be, I'll be back whenever I'm needed. And, like, no, you won't. But anyway, Braemar could have used him at different points in the last 16 years. But, um, so, anyway, at this point, he tells the fan, the, the, the fans chat, Come back soon. Punk says you never know. Punk then makes a point to tell the heckler fan that the chance for Punk, not for him. This heckler fan's apparently saying things we can't hear because we see like you can, you can just tell. Um, the crowd is talking to the fan. Punk is just laughing at him. Punk says he tells the at this point the crowd starts chanting security take him out. The 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 fans are actually telling trying to get the security to throw this guy out of a show that's almost over um, Punk says the fans harmless the fan just wants to go home and write a four post page a four page post on a message board in his mom's basement about how this was the greatest night of his life Punk says no one even knows this fan's name but then he says if you indulge me he goes well, he asks the crowd what's my name and they all start chanting CM Punk Punk salutes the fans leaves the ring as his AFI music comes back on Punk asks who wants to make snow angels and then Punk runs outside the building the cam- camera follows him as Punk just in his trunks runs outside in the snow covered outside he almost slips and falls which it would have been insane if like he did the show that WWE was not happy about him doing and then like injured himself trying to make snow angels punk does indeed make snow angels a bunch of fans follow him out and like run around him punk says my god this is cold and then we start to hear him tell the fans get the fuck home like this is a snowstorm as we abruptly cut away to the next segment but matt that is a lot for us to talk about um I think there's we've I think Punk has done this before, so we kind of I've expressed this sentiment before, but there is nothing more CM Punk than in a building full of people that are very happy to see him in a very heartwarming night for him, and like basically what's a victory lap on his Ring of Honor career. CM Punk, who has like ten to fifteen minutes of mic time here, spends most of it finding the one fan who doesn't like him and just obsessing over him and then railing on him to the point where you start to get uncomfortable and feel bad for the fan who quite frankly is a douchebag. But like, I think Wade Keller even expressed this in his unscripted review. He was like, Wade said something to the effect of like punk started going against this fan for so long that it started to get uncomfortable. And I honestly agree with that. 
Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much the whole promo. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's like, I was, I was really, like, I didn't remember this. So I was like, I'm really expecting, like, a, you know, a heartwarming little thank you speech. And it was not that. It was just like, yeah, this guy sucks, which I'm sure he does, or at least did on that night. Uh, you know, maybe he's a nice guy otherwise. Um, and just like dunking on him for like, I don't know, a good seven or eight minutes. It felt like, um, I was surprised at how long it went. And yeah, I mean, I guess it wasn't uncomfortable for the live crowd, right? They seem to enjoy it. So I guess that's the most important thing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't really feel great to watch now. Um, but you're right. No, that is CM Punk, right? He's back and he has a chip on his shoulder and he's going to make make fun. I mean, like, you know, I don't like, you know, I'm sure Punk was annoyed at this guy. I don't think he wanted he wished him any real harm. I think he's just this kind of guy that has fun being like, I got the mic and I'm going to and I'm going to yeah. dunk on you. Like, I don't think like it was like super malicious. Like, I'm sure. I don't know, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I have a feeling like if they talked in private, the guy would be like, I'm sorry, you know, if I was like, I'm sorry, and the guy, and, and Punk would probably just be like, yeah, you're an ass, but I was just having fun with you. Something like that, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was weird. It was definitely weird and memorable for how weird it was. Yeah, like, I, I feel like, it seems like he's changed now, but it seemed like definitely like, Punk in this era, he's just, I've known people like this, and most people have known people like this, like, he's never happier than when he's a little bit angry, you know, like, like, like it <laughs> it's one way to put it. Yeah. Almost not happy. You got to have a little bit of an, that edge to you. If you're too content, you're boring, right? Like, yeah. Cause again, like ever, but you know, maybe that's also the kind of pathology that drives like people that are like successful wrestlers to be super successful because you heard the stories of like Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero would have great matches and then they would like obsess apparently backstage about like the one thing they got wrong and punish themselves with squats and stuff. And maybe there's just something about like the mindset of a wrestler where you can meet a crowd with 500 people and 499 people are like loving you. And then you are just going to do nothing but focus on the one person that isn't like, maybe that just kind of drives some people. Maybe that's Matt. Why we do a podcast and aren't pro wrestlers other than also our fear of head trauma. But well, I was, I was gonna say I was gonna say like she's like those who can't do podcasts, but um, <laughs> I, I I was gonna say like I you know I, even though I'm not like you know don't have that drive the way like you know wrestlers do, I do sort of relate to the idea of like you are most engaged and interested and like the stuff you want to talk about the most is the stuff where you can like criticize or like analyze the neck you know like i'm much like if i'm gonna have like a conversation with somebody i'm much i have much more fun like talking about like societal like ills and like what to do about them and stuff than i then i or like nitpicking or criticizing or analyzing stuff than i do just being like yeah you know it's so cool to be in the nice weather you know just like talk about what's like fun in my life you know what i mean like yeah. and that's not a good personality trait i'm not saying that it's positive but i definitely relate to that i would rather talk about and debate things that are bad than just bask in things that are good because i think you know, that's I boring can, conversationally even just like writing posts on message boards or twitter like sometimes i in, in my life i've gotten self-conscious like am i coming off too negative here but the thing is it's not that i'm not really uh, in real life a negative person but it's just that yeah completely what you said it is way harder to make a nice thing interesting yeah. than like I will, you know, if I go sometimes if I'm in a weird mood, I will go to like Yelp and read one star reviews <laughs> of a restaurant all day and just like laugh at the weird complaints and things that come up. There are you, there are YouTube videos where people love doing that, where they just yeah. talk about like negative reviews of whatever. Yeah. 
But like, who want who can make a really like interesting? It might be useful if you need buying advice. But who's like, oh, I want to read a really like a good four out of five star review of this pizza. Like, where you can say like, this pizza is pretty delicious. Like, yeah, the cheese sauce ratio is good. Like, that's not that's really hard to make interesting, right? Because from a philosophical level, like, I'm kind of anti negative Yelp reviews. Like, I think it's obnoxious. Like, I think it's like you're you're hurting a worker more than anything when you do that. But yeah. like, but yes, like as far as like. Something interesting to read? Yes, it is way more interesting to see criticism than to see praise. Yeah, that's why I try and tell people sometimes when they get down on stuff, and sometimes I have to tell myself this, but like I always say, like criticism is a lot louder than compliments because for every like criticism you see online, there are probably like five positive things that person has to say about things, but they're not posting them because they just know they're boring. Like they're not going to say like just had a really good. Well, some people will tweet just had a really good pancake, but. Most people would rather just complain about like I went to Denny's and I don't think this was clean. Like that's more likely what the tweet will be. But most I, I've tweeted four times in the past week. I've had a real. I just had a really bad pancake. <laughs> You're always pushing for that good pancake. You're just on a bad streak. You're on like the reverse taker streak. Okay. People people think it's a euphemism, but no, it's just bad pancakes. <laughs> so. um Yeah, yeah. It, it is funny that commentary and even Punk at one point himself kept trying to put over like. Like, like, like the emotion of this is like a big, like, oh, I get to finally say goodbye. But like the emotion that Punk had here was not like this is a big emotional thing. It was like he was clearly having just a time of his life and spending most of his time dicking around, making fun of a fan. Like what I would say is they kind of on contrary, try to make this sound like this was like a 20 year high school reunion when really this was just like you left school and then six months later you have to come back to get something and you visit your teacher and most yeah. of the people that, that that most of the people at the school you still work there that you knew and you recognize them and they're happy to see you back but you don't have like this crazy nostalgia that's gonna be like if you come back to your 20 or 30 year high school reunion and you really loved school you're probably gonna shed some tears you come back to six months later it's just kind of like oh this is kind of neat and that's what this felt like and that's completely appropriate you know it was it was like someone going back and going oh this is mostly how i left it it's kind of nice to be back for a night and that's good enough. But yep. Anyway, Wade Keller. One more weird comment from him. I, I love you. I I hope Wade makes many more weird. I, I, this is one of my favorite new parts of the last year or two of through the years. Wade writes, "The Snow Angel scene from CM Punk showed he has guts because that's not the most masculine thing you'll see a wrestler do. But he's dating Maria so he can get away with it. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That, what? Damn, then I'm never going to be able to make snow angels. You're dating Maria so you can get away with making snow angels. is not a sentiment I thought I would have to read off today on today's podcast. Um, I guess if you make snow angels as an adult, Wade Keller thinks you're a pussy. You can take that with Wade. <laughs> but 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 if Wade but if Wade does think you're a pussy, you can counterbalance that by dating Maria Canellis. Mike Bennett. Make the snow angels that you – Mike Canales, excuse me. Make the snow angels that you want to make. <laughs> and finally, we cut to the Ring of Honor wrestling school. Students in the ring training under Austin Aries' supervision. Aries leans into the camera and addresses Matt Seidel, saying he's had a few days to think about this. And who is he to tell Matt Seidel he can't shoot for the stars and go after his and Roderick Strong's tag belts? Aries says they're going to put the titles on the line against him and AJ Styles but warns that every decision you make has consequences and Matt will face his at the fourth year anniversary show. It is kind of funny that one of the last things we hear on the show is Austin Aries saying every decision you make has consequences.
consequences because basically that's kind of the story of the show for Aries and a bunch of other people. But that was unscripted too. Matt, this is a weird show because I try always to give like recommendations because there are some people that occasionally listen. I think they did not grow up with this stuff. We're getting older, but and probably maybe more in the future. But this is a show where it's like I can recommend this, but only to people that don't need my recommendation. Like, I feel like this show is a good worth a watch. If you're such a huge ring of honor history fan or CM punk fan that you want to see a very weird, crazy chapter in their life. But if you're that huge a fan, you don't need us to recommend it to you. I think anybody else, there is some good wrestling on the show. I, I think that Aries, um, Nigel match is close to the level of being a hidden gem, but in a lot of ways, it's probably one of the weakest in ring shows we've seen from ring of honor in quite some time. But it is a complete novelty of a show. There is no other show in Ring of Honor, even the other shows labeled unscripted. There's nothing else quite like this show. Yeah, if you love Ring of Honor from this era, then you've probably already seen this. But if you haven't, you will enjoy it, I think. Um, like, you know, just all like the nostalgia, all like the weird, all the oddballs and novelties and, and stuff like that. I think you'll get a big kick out of it. Um, if you're not in that camp, then yeah, you probably won't find this that entertaining or interesting. But I agree with you that that match um, between Nigel and Aries is good. And it also, it marks like a, a, an important moment in the development of Nigel McGuinness as a wrestler. So if you're a Nigel McGuinness completist, you gotta, you gotta watch that match. But again, yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, every single recommendation we can make is like, you've probably already seen this game. Like if you're a Nigel McGuinness completist, you've seen this match probably, but either way, that is the show. So if you want to get in contact with us through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H, you can leave a comment on YouTube. There's a couple of nice people that leave great comments. And by the way, um, and by the way, Trevor, we did it. We just finished the fourth year of ROH. That is depressing, but also feels like an accomplishment. Um, <laughs> we have a thrown the pro wrestling only plugs for him at Trevor Dame on Twitter at Mayor MGF on Twitter. Yeah, you're kind of blowing my mind. And you know what, Matt? I should have known it because I have right in my notes. The next show we are going to cover, the next one, the timeline is Ring of Honor's fourth year anniversary show. And that's a big show. It's uh, we got Brian Danielson defending against Jimmy Rave in a match. I believe Jimmy Rave is one of his favorite matches. Uh, Aries and Strong against Matt Seidel and uh, AJ Styles. The Briscoes return, which I think for me is going to be one of the big highlights. Like, and, and I really do like the way they've built up that tag title match. I think they did a good job with that. Yeah, it, it's just one of those shows where there's not one giant, giant match, but there's like a lot of like 8 out of 10 like in terms of excitement level. Like Samoa Joe um, versus Jay Lethal blow off. Who could think of an ROH show that's going to have that? Um, yeah, it is crazy that we are literally going to be caught covering a Samoa Joe Jay Lethal match within like I don't know when we'll do our next show, but like within a week or days or a goddamn you know another one sixteen years later. But that is the weird magic of through the years. It should be a great time, and so that's why I'm going to tell you guys that until next time, you should have a good time. You should have a great time.